0: Good morning, members. and I declare the meeting now open to the public online. I would like to welcome members who are participating by video conferencing this morning to enable us to maintain the social distancing requirements here in the Senate chamber. And can I also remind all members about the protocols regarding the use of electronic devices. Um, the committee has received no apologies for today. Um, are members aware of any apologies? No okay thank you so moving on then to chairperson's business Uh, members we have a double meeting today in order to start consideration of the evidence that we received from our inquiry we have 21 written submissions as well as input from families via our informal zoom and over 690 responses to our survey and i'd like to just thank everyone who contributed to uh to those engagements and and very significant and high quality engagements, I think, and and I want to especially welcome um, families who took time to brief the committee uh, in session on that as well. Um, So the only the other the other meeting that I did this week uh, along with Deputy Chair Pam Cameron was with the Children's Law Centre, who did raise issues of concern around a number of 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 elements of the their scope of their work, including um, some around the regulations or potential regulations, mental health, and this has been a feature across a number of different engagements in the past, while mental health is certainly a huge concern and uh, some other concerns. So they they undertook that they would provide a written briefing to the committee on the the issues that they were raising, so that will come to us in due course. So thank you for that. Uh, Draft minutes then, members. I refer you to the draft minutes of the meetings held on the 5th of November, which are tab 3.1 of your meeting pack. Are members content with the minutes? Yes. Members content. Thank you. There are two matters arising there from those. Uh, first, the committee's motion was agreed by email, and thank you, everyone. And that has been scheduled now for debate on Monday, the 23rd of November. And secondly, in relation to the request from the Lung Health APG, I'm afraid we don't have capacity to undertake research for the All Party Group at this time. Uh, given everything that that's going on within health and within the committee at the minute but the clerk has indicated that she would be content to discuss options informally with uh, with deputy chair palm as as the chair of that group that. members content with that okay thank you so covid 19 disease response then um, we are today receiving a briefing from the jurors coalition and i refer members to papers from cures organizations at tab five of your meeting pack Also included at 5.3 to 5.6 are responses from a number of departments to the committee's letter regarding financial support for public sector workers unable to work due to curing responsibilities. Can I advise members that the representatives from the Coalition of Cures Organisations are here today to brief the committee on issues facing those with curing responsibilities during the pandemic? So I'd now like to welcome via video link Ms. Claire ann McGee, who is head of Cures NA, Ms. Orna Watt, who is Director of Parent Action, Ms. Valerie Sullivan, Chief Executive of Cause, and Mr. Craig Harrison, Policy and Public Affairs Manager, uh, Marie Curie. And um, I'm delighted to have you joining us this morning, everyone, and thank you for taking time to brief the committee. I would just like to remind you all that when you're not speaking, please place your phone on mute and um, because it can interfere with the other speakers. So keep your phone on mute, please. And I would like now to go ahead and invite Claire anne Claire anne uh, we will be delighted now to hear from you in relation to issues arising. Thank you. Thank
1: you very much, Chair, and thank you all for having us here today. A recent study shows that there are now an estimated 320,000 carers in Northern Ireland. That's 320,000 who, since the beginning of this pandemic, have been providing practical, emotional and healthcare support to family members and friends. This figure doesn't include the upwards of 30,000 young carers estimated to be in Northern Ireland, it's just the tip of the iceberg. There are countless people out there who, do, who don't see themselves as carers, just as a family member or friend doing their bit to help out someone in need. Everyone's caring journey is unique, and everyone will have experiences of caring during this pandemic which are slightly different. But whether you care for a partner with mental health issues, an elderly relative with dementia, a child with a learning disability, or the countless other types of care roles out there, there are some key issues that have surfaced throughout the course of this pandemic which will have both short- and long-term effects for carers and the person they care for. As lockdown began in the middle of March, the health and social care services and special schools relied on by so many families, stopped overnight, with little to no communication on when or even if they would start up again. Families were left without vital health therapies and practical support, or where that was available, it was greatly reduced. Carers shielded with those they cared for who were considered vulnerable. They worried about care workers coming into their homes with no PPE. They feared for the person they cared for getting COVID and ending up hospitalised, or worse. Many carers struggled to adapt to working from home and caring full time, let alone adding homeschooling into the mix for those who had children too. Many young carers and young adult carers tried to balance online learning The worry over the uncertainty of whether or not exams were going ahead alongside additional caring responsibilities. Many who attended local support groups or activities had to try to come to terms with new technologies to enable them to continue to keep in touch with the outside world. Sometimes that wasn't even an option for those living in rural communities or those who didn't have access to digital technology. And many feared for loved ones who were in hospital and care homes, unable to see them or provide the additional support that makes a real difference to the quality of care and life in those homes. Short breaks, surgeries and treatments were halted and many carers felt abandoned as services for the person they cared for were redirected, leaving them holding the vast burden of care. In the weeks and months that followed, carers continued to struggle on as services and supports have been slow to restart. One carer commented to us recently, I haven't had an uninterrupted night's sleep in months and I'm exhausted as I continually have to be alert to unpredictable and dangerous behaviour, which has become more frequent and severe. By the lack of psychiatric and psychological care for several months, as the health trust simply stopped providing care and services. Just last month, a report from Carers NI, Carers UK, showed that 85% of carers in Northern Ireland were providing more care now than they were pre-COVID. The main reason for this increase in caring was because of services such as day centres and short breaks, were closed or were greatly reduced. Carers also cited that the increase in caring was due to the needs of the person they care for becoming more complex as a result of the COVID. Pandemic and the restrictions, and because family and friends they relied on before for support were no longer available or able to help. Almost two thirds of carers said they hadn't had a break from caring since before the pandemic, despite many providing round the clock care and more intense care than ever before. 73% of carers said they feel exhausted and worn out, with almost half saying they feel they're at breaking point. It's unsurprising then that two thirds of carers in Northern Ireland feel their mental health is worsened as a result of this pandemic. Provided in people's homes behind closed doors, the role of unpaid carers is largely unrecognized if they provide high levels of care and support to the most vulnerable in our society. This pandemic has seen a rise in the number of new carers and young carers coming forward in Northern Ireland. Yet seven, eight months on from the beginning of this pandemic, they continue to feel, they, they continue to feel they've been abandoned. That their voices and lived experience hasn't been heard in delivery of services or in the reset and recovery process. Carers must be part of the planning for the restoration of support services to those they care for. For many in Northern Ireland, the first lockdown restrictions lifted back in July, and some form of normality began to return for a few months at least. But this wasn't the case for many carers, as many continued and still continue to shield the person they care for. Carers were cut off and isolated, with over two thirds being unable to keep in contact with neighbours, family members or the local community, and around half feeling lonely and cut off from people. The mental health implications of this long-term are extremely concerning. Without access to appropriate emotional support, carers will be at greater risk of experiencing chronic stress, anxiety, and depression. Many carers and family experiences are not consistent with the messages that services remain accessible. Despite being reassured that carers' assessments would continue to be carried out, albeit virtually over the phone, Department of Health data on carers' assessments between April and June 2020 showed that only 2,789 carers' assessments were offered, than what was the height of the first wave of the pandemic? This represents a thirty-two percent decrease in the number of assessments offered in the previous quarter, and a decrease of thirty-three percent when compared to the same quarter last year. Of the assessments that were offered, fifty-four percent were accepted and carried out. This shows that where assessments were offered, more carers took up the assessment than we would normally have seen. However, the problem wasn't that not enough assessments were being offered. The problem wasn't that. They weren't, being ta- they weren't being taken up, probably not enough assessments were offered in the first case. The quarterly carer statistics report highlights the impact of COVID-19 on carers assessments, and states that carers assessments were continued to be offered and completed when requested, and that COVID restrictions reduced the footfall on clients' homes, and therefore the request for carers assessments was reduced. Under the Carers and Direct Payments Act of 2002, it is not the carers' responsibility to request an assessment, but rather the Health and Social Care Trust's statute duty to inform carers of their right to have that assessment. The quarterly report also states, direct contact was maintained by telephone at an increased level. However, the administration of information gathering work, such as that for carers' assessments, was not prioritised in operational services during the pandemic. Many carers we've spoken to across all of our organisations say they've had no or very little contact with their social worker or key worker over this period. And despite many attempts to contact them, they've had difficulty reaching them or been triaged by student social workers with no particular authority to support them. The closure of day centres, special schools and short break provisions and the limitations in many domiciliary care packages has had a detrimental effect on the person in need of those services, but also on the carer and the family who are picking up the pieces. Loss of attendance at school and day centres is already having an impact for children and adults with learning difficulties and or learning disabilities. We find change difficult whose developmental progress has been delayed as a result of the closures and reductions, and ultimately, whose mental health has been affected by lockdown as a result. My colleague Orla from Parent Action will be happy to take questions on this later. Similarly, the delivery of mental health services has changed considerably during the crisis. Lockdown and social distancing measures have halted many face-to-face services and inpatient care. However, mental health services at a community level, while also critically impacted, appear to have been able to adapt more quickly, quickly, and Valerie will be able to speak to some of this later. Over a third of carers said their own NHS treatment had been delayed as a result of COVID, whilst over half said treatment for the person they care for has been delayed, both of which has affected the individual's health and well-being. Whilst we acknowledge the difficulty in reopening services and restarting treatments due to the risk of infection for both staff and attendees, etc., the long-term impact of keeping these services closed or at the current level of reduced capacity could be much greater. Concerns have also been raised by some carers about the lack of awareness of flexibility around the use of direct payments as a means to buy in supports and services. Despite Department of Health guidance on the flexibility of direct payments, carers are telling us that the approaches by different health and social care trusts, different programs of care, and indeed between different social workers, is causing huge inconsistencies, some being more flexible than others. This caused huge concern for many carers at the beginning of the first lockdown, the CAs were shielding or self-isolating, and carers had no one else to them. Some carers sought to use the direct payments budgets to employ family members to help them, and more often than not, these requests were refused by the Trusts, leaving carers to struggle on for weeks and months on their own. The majority of carers responded to the carers and I, carers' case survey were balancing work and caring responsibilities. Some were retired or looking after dependents full time, and 4% said their ability to work is limited because of insufficient social care support. Of those who were working, 37% were key workers, working to keep society functioning through our key services, and 47% were working from home. 9% had to reduce their working hours because of caring responsibilities during COVID, whilst 4% had to give up work altogether because of caring. For those who are juggling working care, we need to see more support from employers to help them continue to provide care and work, but we also need a reliable social care system to enable them to do that. Young carers are often an invisible group who provide pivotal support relating to health and social care within their household. Through COVID-19, young carers found that their caring role increased because of being at home all day, and in a sense, there was no escape from this caring role and responsibility. They often lost their whole routine, and by not attending school and not being able to attend face-to-face meetings and activities with support networks like Action for Children, they dealt a big load to their emotional wellbeing, and that too that their ongoing anxieties in terms of returning to school if they are caring for family members with vulnerabilities. Often the support they receive from schools is variable, as there is a major gap in terms of understanding their situation among staff at school or within the wider community. The COVID-19 pandemic has torn up the rulebook when it comes to loss, grief, and bereavement, and carers are one of the groups bearing the brunt of that. Many carers have been shouldering an extra burden, an extra end-of-life care burden at home, and dealing with their own feelings of loss and grief without access to their support networks. Carers have been heavily impacted by the disruption that COVID has caused community and family rituals that normally follow death. They haven't been able to rely on the wider family network rallying around them, and events that would usually facilitate collective support and remembrance, like funerals and weeks, had to change fundamentally. What this means is that during the moment when they're perhaps at the most vulnerable, carers have been deprived of the family and community support that they would have had and what we would have had taken for granted a year ago. In the worst cases, they may be facing the grieving process entirely alone, and this loneliness can make grief much more intense and harder to process. Responding to this situation involves many different components but one key aspect is ensuring bereaved carers have access to timely and high-quality bereavement support. The picture here is complicated because demands of services without stripping supply even before COVID-19 came to our shores. We need investment training to boost capacity in this sector and Craig will be happy to talk a bit more about this during the Q&A. So what needs to happen next? The majority of adults in Northern Ireland will care for a family member or friend at some point in their lives. But the impact on their health, finances and well-being is often underestimated. Even a few hours of care a week can have a significant impact on carers' lives if there are thousands of people caring around the clock. During this pandemic, many have cared without access to any form of break. And whilst we understand many health and social care staff were, were isolating or were redeployed to frontline services, and that day centres and short break provisions can only be opened safely and at a minimum risk to staff and those attending, carers are hugely frustrated that their services and supports have not been protected at a time when they needed them most. Government must prioritise carers in its plans, carry out an urgent review of break services and ensure that wider social care services have enough funding to manage over the winter. Whilst much has been done to rightly recognise the work of health and social care professionals in this pandemic, the role of unpaid carers have played in the effort against COVID is forgotten. Many carers feel invisible and unrecognised for all that they do. With the, right in, with the recent increases in local lockdowns, carers will be continuing to provide high levels of care through the winter months. It is only fair that they are recognised for the invaluable role they play in the national effort at this time, but also that they have received the right support. It is easy to see why carers feel abandoned and left to cope with everything alone. They are worried about their ability to continue to provide care over the winter and through the rest of this pandemic, without more supports in place for them and the person they care for. In the short term, we need to see the quick and safe reopening of day centres and short breaks. Ultimately, if treatments and services for people with disabilities, mental health issues, etc, are reintroduced, then some of the burden on carers will be lifted. Carers need to be involved in the planning and reopening of services as part of the wider reset and recovery plan. Co-production and true partnership working with carers to restore essential services which support them to transition back into some form of normality as lockdown eases and while COVID-19 remains present. We need therapeutic interventions for carers to support their mental health and emotional wellbeing so that if they choose to, they can continue to provide care. Cross-departmental working to support carers is vital at this time. As carers generally sit under the umbrella of health, they're involved in every aspect of our society, from being part of the wider workforce to reaching the full potential through our education system. We need to see the Department of Health working collaboratively with other departments, including the Department for Communities to address the financial impact of caring during COVID, the Department of Education to support our young carers, and the children and young people within our education system who have additionally aid in her not being fully supported at this time. And with the Department for Economy, to help employers better support their workforce or trying to double work and caring responsibilities. More needs to be done to ensure family carers have access to relatives and care homes, particularly at end of life, and that those bereaved during the pandemic are supported to deal with their grief. We need to see increased offers and uptakes of care assessments through health and social care workforce training and wider public promotion of caring and carers assessments. Contingency planning is key to the assessment process should be encouraged widely, so that if anything happens to the person, the main carer, a plan is in place to support the person being cared for. Many of these issues have always been around for carers, but COVID has hugely exacerbated them and has shown an even bigger light on the vital role carers play in society. They are, they are undoubtedly the backbone that holds the health and social care system in Northern Ireland together. Therefore, longer term, we need to see new legislation to protect and enhance the rights of carers in Northern Ireland, developed with carers, as per the Party People Report 2017. We need a new cross-departmental care strategy to replace the 2006 strategy and we need ring-fence funding to ensure the outcomes of this can be fully achieved. With more and more carers struggling to make ends meet, we need to see increased financial support for carers in the form of supplementary payments or similar. We need to work with employers to support carers to remain in work and return to work. And we need greater support for our young carers to ensure they have the life of their own and that they can reach their full potential. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to have a monumental impact on unpaid carers' lives, not only because of the increased amount of care that many are having to provide, but because of the far-reaching effect that providing this care is having on many aspects of their life, their relationships, their mental and physical health, their paid work and their emotional well-being. Whilst there have been some positive innovations in tech-based support for carers, and some carers have greatly enjoyed the slower pace of life during the COVID pandemic, the vast majority have found life significantly more difficult. Winter is fast approaching, bringing with it colder weather and the usual pressures on health services. Worrying about the coming winter period is causing stress and anxiety for carers, many of whom have had no break from caring for many months and are reaching breaking point. The risk of burnout is especially concerning when so many are worried that there is no backup or contingency support available for the people they care for should they get ill. It's important to remember that unpaid carers are just as vital in the national effort to keep those with complex health conditions and disabilities safe during this outbreak and far beyond. Thank you for your
0: time this morning and we would be happy to take any questions at this point thank you thank you very much Anne. and i suppose um just you know I'm, I'm delighted to see you this morning and by way of declaring the interest that i have worked with many of you actually in relation to cures issues since i became an mla mm-hmm. and uh just I suppose to note for members information that we are working on a, a putting together an apg on cures and, and it would be great to see all of you there um I think your presentation, Claire Anne, has just kind of crystallized the extent of the impact that COVID nineteen has had on carers. I think we probably do have an awareness of how under pressure carers were anyway before it came in. But the particularly unique impact of COVID in relation to services closing, family members not being able to attend, social outlets being with b- becoming non-existent. Created a kind of a perfect storm for cures in a way, and I have to say I would be very disappointed that that there hasn't been more support offered to cures, and and I think that's that's something that we really do need to get to grips with, as you say we're coming into the winter period. Um, I am particularly concerned about mental health issues as well, and, and young people in 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 particular, and I, it was interesting, and I suppose something that that uh, was very useful to highlight the fact that how many additional young cures have been kind of brought forward into a curing role as a result of COVID and no other services being available. And that's probably um, unquantified at this stage, but if, if you do have any idea of numbers in relation to that, it, it would be useful to know uh, in terms of how many young cures have been impacted. The other issue that I think, and this is my question, is around the day centres and, and the respite services. Is there any engagement going on with the Cures Coalition at present with the Department, or are you aware of any work to being undertaken to address that issue urgently? Because I think curers are at significant risk of, of breakdown in, in terms of coming to breaking point in their curing role. I'm I'm acutely aware that day centres have Only partially reopened. There's a something of a postcode lottery in, in how that's operating. I also know of at least one trust where actually their own carers forum has been recently um, suspended or, or stood down, so that's worrying as well. But is there any ongoing work in relation to the day centres, Claire Ann, that's being done at present? Or in, if, if they're not reopening, what alternatives are being put in place to provide some support?
1: Yeah, there has been a little bit of engagement. Obviously we've been working with the Department of Health um for a number of months throughout this pandemic. So there has been engagement there. I think the issue tends to be more on the ground and, and perhaps Orla might be able to speak a bit more to this effect um in relation to individual health and social care trusts are taking slightly different approaches. And the as you rightly said, Colin, it's very much a postcode lottery at the moment. Orla, I'm not sure if you want to maybe come in with some of that and you had some um key points from parent care, particularly
2: yes thanks very much and um thank you chair and members for inviting us to to share some of the parent carers experiences in relation to day centers chair really um and other out of home respite supports for adults particularly with disabilities um i'd agree with claire Anne, and what she's hearing from parent carers is that um each health trust is taking a different approach and it it is in the historical way of taking a top-down approach so informing carers of what will be available to them and um, I have uh, one particular parent carer who has been very frustrated um, because the number of um, young people or adults who are attending uh, day centres have been broken down into percentages. So we can have percentages of hours of care in particular day centres, and the trusts are sort of leaving it to the day centres as well. Um, so it's parent carers really are the last to hear what is available, when the time is going to be increased, if it's going to be increased, and um, based on restrictions coming down very necessarily um, as the OR rate changes, um, Again parent carers are the last to hear what's available and and the our children are um very very uh, intolerant of change if feel like they've had to tolerate an awful lot of uncertainty over um the last nine months for a lot of children some children with special needs who are still not in school or adults with spe- ad- adults with disabilities who haven't had their domiciliary care packages reinstated or uh, getting access to day centers so um from the parent carers experience, which is where we come from, communication, and I know this of my colleagues here will speak about this as well, communication and involvement of parent carers during the pandemic for the emergency response, and also in planning for us to live with COVID-19 in our communities is, it's just really not happening in any sort of consistent manner. And we believe that that's because it's an absence of leadership within um, health and social care trusts particularly and for children in the education authority as well to involve to actively involve and seek out carers and parent carers to get their expertise into the plans moving forward so um it depends on who you speak to. chair in answer to that question um parent carers um about their experiences of it Sorry, obviously some have had very good experiences and some facilities and services and particularly schools have really gone over and above working 12 hours a day and working weekends and that sort of stuff to try and ensure that the children, young people and adults with disabilities and their cares are not... Um, Uh, or try try to reduce their isolation but you know it's very ad hoc there's no consistent support for those organizations to do that they're being left really to do it on their own um and no additional resources either um particularly common towards them so um i hope that answers your question
0: yes it, it, it does i suppose it does answer the question yes i suppose it doesn't it doesn't address the concern which which we all i think all of us all of us continue to have but thank you for that. My other question then before I go to members was just on the direct payments that were mentioned there and flexibility. And I know the minister has uh, committed to looking at flexibility in, in relation to direct payments. Has there been any, uh, any progress in terms of providing a framework of flexibility so that direct payments can be used in other ways where, where cures are unable to use it in the traditional way as a result of COVID? Has there been any progress on that?
1: We haven't seen anything directly now in the latest CARES guidance guidance um, um, issued by the department and actually worked collaboratively and um, co-produced, I with organisations such as ourselves. And um, it does state in that you know that they're encouraging the trusts to use the flexibility. I think the issue is that, as I said in my, my sort of opening statement, it's not necessarily happening that way on the ground. You know, every trust is doing. Again, it comes back to the postcode lottery issue. Chair, and um, some trusts are doing maybe offering more flexibility than others and Actually, right down into individual social workers, it's not even just as an overarching issue, it's individual social workers as well. It is very interesting between, within trusts. So, there's been guidance obviously has come out to say as part of that um, unpaid carers and formal guidance during COVID to say that there is there should be flexibility and the department are encouraging trusts to be flexible in their approach to it, but actually on the ground it doesn't appear to be happening too often.
0: Okay. Thank you. So I'm going to go to members, and I'm going first to our deputy chair, Pam Cameron. Thank you, Chair, and thanks,
3: Clare and, and panel, for for your attendance here at committee this morning. And I suppose just to say from the outset, we we do fully recognise um, how much we owe to thousands of carers across Northern Ireland for the incredible work and the vital support that they're they're doing and looking after loved ones, friends, and neighbours. And we do um, absolutely recognise that there's a there's a duty in all of us to ensure that the right financial um, and resource is there for you. Um, and I understand it's a difficult time. Um, my questions to you would be um, could you give us your view on what an uh, outline what essential services should be prioritised as part of the reset of health and social care? And to what extent have community and voluntary providers been able to plug gaps in support if that has happened? And uh, the other question would be um, the cares that you represent are they care are they currently getting access to mental health support and uh, to what extent are respite and short break services currently operational
1: i'm happy to take the first part and then i'll maybe pass over to maybe valerie for the, the second part of that and um, just in relation Pam, to the prioritized areas i suppose the main thing is going to be the wait update of services and and supports for people with learning disabilities, physical disabilities, older people who may be attending these day centres, that should definitely be a, a priority area. And um, the community and voluntary sector has plugged a lot of gaps, you know, right down to grassroots, you know, community organisations, GAA, Girls Rights, the whole lot, everyone, everyone has sort of chipped in at the community level. And um, there's been a lot of projects going on, I know NEAP, for example, the New Centre and Health Partnership is one that has been doing a lot of work on the ground, delivering food parcels to carers who were shielding who maybe couldn't get out of the house to access um, any food or things like that. Prescriptions have been dropped off, medications have been supplied. They've been doing those sort of projects on the ground um, and really plugging that gap. I think the community voluntary sector need to be recognised for the work that they've done during this pandemic to support not just carers, but the vulnerable in our, in society, they've really picked up the bullet in that. Valerie, I'll maybe pass to you, just in relation to the mental health supports.
0: You're on mute there, Valerie.
4: Sorry, is that OK not? Um So Pam, just to um, talk a little bit about the mental health support to carers, uh, there, there has been, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of material that is emerging to show the psychological impact on being a carer during the pandemic. And I don't think it would be a surprise to any of us that it, it's very much in line with what one would expect if someone is stuck inside during a period of lockdown with someone who is unwell and requiring 24-hour care. Um, So there is a a very big psychological impact to be dealt with. Um, In terms of what is coming out of the Department at the minute, there has been some discussion and there's certainly a recognition that there needs to be further support in place. But in real terms, we don't have a framework in place as yet um, that is providing tailored one-to-one, um, person-centred psychological therapies for, for carers to support them with their own mental health. There's been a really big response from the Department of Communities in terms of having online materials available um, and giving people, signposting them to what you, what you might call self-help um, options, You know, looking at the public health agency's five steps to wellbeing, all of those kinds of interventions. But in terms of real hard end psychological supports for carers, those aren't coming through as yet, that I'm aware of.
0: Thank you. Okay, thank you, panel, and I'll go then to Paula.
5: Um, thank you, thank you very much, everybody, for your attendance this morning. Um, my first question relates to those people who care for children who are clinically extremely vulnerable. Um, where they are still not comfortable even sending their children back to the special educational needs schools and, and it's really just to protect the sort of family bubble but the, the downside of that and they recognise this themselves and that they're not getting access to the likes of the therapies for, uh, for example. Physiotherapy, is, is there a potential solution out of this because I, I know people want to protect their child but they also recognise that there's potential harm in keeping them secluded.
2: Is is that okay if I if I take that answer, Clare? Yep. Chair,
6: Go Thanks, ahead, thanks
2: very much, Paula. Yep. Hi, um, thanks very much, and thanks for your question. Um, yes, it, it's. I think it's mainly around um, return to school that, that you're asking, um, and. Uh, in, our experience would have been, as Karen has said, um, as parent carers of children with special needs, and, and some of our parent care members obviously have children with very complex disabilities, um, there is that balance that they have to strike between the risk of infection and most of our children um, would have a um, higher risk of respiratory infection and respiratory infection obviously can be devastating to them because of their underlying health conditions. A lot of them have neurodegenerative conditions which mean they progressively get sicker and their needs increase as they get older from quite early in childhood so um, it has been a juggle for parent carers to decide that it is a fact that there are a number of children that still cannot access Um, they have vital health therapies in school because of the risk of infection and that's a decision that has to be made between the medical supports and the parent, but ultimately it's the parents decision whether that happens. Often some of our children, the vast majority of our children have younger siblings who for the same reason are not being able to attend nursery and school um, and older siblings as well because of the, inf- the risk of infection they might bring back to their very vulnerable brother or sister. Um, so. Unfortunately, over lockdown, and um, there was very powerful testimony or evidence given to the Education Committee on the 22nd of October um, by um, the National Autistic Society and the Evangelical Alliance and parents within those organisations who um, described services, particularly school, um, being whipped out from under their child overnight. And that was nine months ago, and nothing's been resumed. Um, And just to make the point that uh, school attendance is not just about education for children with special needs, like you say, Paula. Um, It is access to vital health therapies, which, in fact, allow these children to access the curriculum, which is their basic human right under the UN Convention. And without those therapies, they can't access their curriculum. But it's also the emotional um, support and... uh, challenge of social isolation that you get from connected with your school community and um, who know the child and share in the care of the child with the parents absolutely um so the experience has been that with the withdrawal and closure of schools and we're not just talking about special schools here there's a huge amount of children with special needs who don't deal very well with unpredictability in mainstream schools And that's the way we're going, of course, is inclusion of all children, regardless of their learning difficulties, in mainstream education. Um, They have had all of that routine and all that certainty and all those therapies access removed as well. So it's not just special schools. And again, the Education Authority has unfortunately failed to provide any alternative in home-based setting. For example, online learning, the vast majority of our children have communication difficulties or are actually communicate non-verbally. They cannot access online learning. Blended learning is just not possible. For those children who are um, of of a level of um, academic uh, engagement that can, it's incredibly stressful. Um, And some, obviously, on the other hand, have have found it very good not having to deal with very stressful social environments and work out the rules. But um, the vast majority of, of those children have found not having access to their education and the therapies that they need to access the education, really, really difficult. Parents are left in an impossible choice. And I'm I'm thinking of one particular family where um, all three young children in the house, because of the complex disabilities of one child, have been out of school since February. And there has been no very limited intervention into the house Again, even through domiciliary care or support from organisations like the Northern Ireland Children's Hospice um, into the house because of the increased risk of infection and the mother's fear that that, that will cause that's a risk that she can't take. So um, I suppose, again, in relation to what Pam's question was, was around parents' um, main priority for renewal of services is is. Um, and particularly getting children access to school, um, children, many parents see school as um, a mental health intervention on a daily basis for their children. Children with special needs, speci- specifically those who are non- have non verbal communication, are often forgotten about that they can actually have mental health issues and huge anxieties. Despite global pandemics, most of their life they wake up in the morning anxious and this is the priority of their parent carers is often their mental health children and young people strategic partnership have been trying to do needs assessments around and the community's priority would be mental health services for children and young people with disabilities and just to finish um the children's commissioner's report still waiting in 2018 which reviewed child and adolescent mental health services found that children with disabilities communication difficulties and who are non-verbal cannot access mental health services as they are currently formed because you need to be verbal you need to be identified that my emotions are in distress here you need to be able to recognize your emotions and then tell um, a trusted adult in order to access mental health supports and that currently isn't available to the vast majority of, of children so mental health but also access to school is, is a real conundrum Paula that no one is approaching parent carers at the moment to try to solve and i would believe that our priority is that you need to involve parent carers and carers like claire was saying moving forward or we're not going to find any of these answers thank you thank you
5: and just a a quick second question that was relating to um, the Chair had alluded to the correspondence we'd received from the Health Minister talking about support for carers who work in the public sector. And I'm just wondering, has anybody got any thoughts on how we can better support carers who work in the private sector, who maybe have a different um, ethos and, and different focus? Thank you.
1: Yeah, so approximately about 15% of the workforce in Northern Ireland are juggling work and care, and that was pre-COVID. And um, we fully expect, you know, after everything is done and dusted with, with COVID, we would see an increase in that. We do certainly have seen an increase on calls to our advice line and um, from people who are trying to balance working care. What we would say is there is a lot of resources out there for employers, whether you're from the private sector, public sector, whatever sector you're working, um, to try and encourage these to be more care friendly employers, I suppose. There's things that we're trying to push through for at the moment in relation to the likes of flexible working arrangements, carers leave is obviously a great option. But we have found a recent report from Employers for Carers actually did a a survey of their members who had managed to introduce really positive supports for working carers during the pandemic at a time when everything else was was going a bit mad. And they were able to offer supports for working carers and that was through the flexible working approach and having those certain days or times of the day that they were able to work there is extended leave, awarded special leave, awarded carers leave on occasions, And some organisations be able to set up things like staff carers networks. And um, we started about developing a range of, um, another network, I suppose, of employers in Northern Ireland who are keen to look at how best to support carers who are juggling working and care. And they've, they've started to re- introduce some of these measures themselves, which is great to see. I think just even for employers to be more aware that they will have people in their, their workforce who are caring, I think it's vital that they at least acknowledge that um, and I think that will go some way towards carers being a bit more comfortable about talking about their role, their caring role within, within the, with the employers, their line managers.
7: Would, would it be possible for me to just come in there as well, um, Paula? I, I think um, everything that, that Clara Anne has, has said there is 100% uh, spot on. Um, and, on top of that i think we need to recognize that you know fortunately for some carers you know depending on their circumstances um, and especially we would see this with uh, carers of terminally ill people you know eventually there may come a point where you know the person's condition deteriorates to such an extent that, that they do have to whether it's temporarily or permanently leave work um, and in those circumstances what the priority then needs to be is is to make sure you know first and foremost that they have sort of access to adequate financial support you know, to sort of see them through that. Um, And in that context, you know, I'm sure this committee is well aware, but, you know, what's currently on offer at the minute through carers allowance just falls way short. You you know, when you consider that um, it works out at less than £70 a week for a minimum of 35 hours of car, you know, that's an equivalent sort of of hourly rate that wouldn't be accepted in any other sort of uh, job or, you know, it would violate every sort of employment law, excuse me, that you can think about under the sun. um, obviously, that's an issue that existed pre-COVID, you know, uh, but it, it is something I think that it's a priority area and sort of moving forward, if we want to look at how we can best support carers, you know, th- that needs to be part of the, of the conversation, I think.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm going to go to Jonathan and then I'm going to go to Colin on the phone. And I am just conscious of time, so we'll maybe try and keep it as brief to give everyone a chance as we can. Thank you, Jonathan.
8: Thank you, Chair, and thanks to the Coalition of CURRs and, indeed, all the CURRs across Northern Ireland. Uh, I I think it was mentioned, and it's so true, uh, throughout uh, COVID-19 there has been much focus, and rightly so, on those that are in care, but less so on those that are providing care, in particular in the home, and and I think uh, particularly of the decisions that we take in this place and how that can impact or have a knock-on impact on those uh, looking for respite, etc., but feel that, uh, that's not available given the current circumstances. One of the standout parts of the presentation for me was actually the contribution of unpaid care. Uh, and I, I look particularly at uh, the value of unpaid care for older people with dementia, sitting at, at 350 million. I think that's uh, something that is not known by the general public as to the contribution care provide to our society, in particular in that home setting. Uh, so I suppose probably what I would say is I, I support the, the balanced work responsibilities and also uh, greater means of financial support. So can I ask, in building on the theme of the discussion here today, in your opinion, have trusts and major public bodies uh, granted enough flexibility to, to carers to take off work? Uh, and if not, how can this be strengthened to give those, are these employees, greater security and confidence? And does the panel have any insight? into the number of carers who are currently waiting on reassessment because of the status of the person they care for has changed during COVID-19 and how many carers are actually waiting on an initial assessment?
1: Thank you. Back to Pamela. Thank you for the question, sir, Jonathan. Um, I suppose, in in short, it's not to sound gloomy in the sense that the Trusts haven't done anything they have. There's been really good positive things that some Trusts have done with them bringing a lot of their supports and services online in relation to, and the likes of offering self-care type programs online, which a lot of carers have been able to access. But have if you the question being, have you have they given enough flexibility to enable carers to, to work? And um, the answer would be no. And mm-hmm. um, domiciliary care packages, where wide short break provisions, just haven't been there. They've been reduced greatly. You know we know some trusts are operating at between ten and twenty percent of day centres currently opening. Um, and that's just not enough, and where, even where that is happening, it, it's greatly reduced. I think one of my colleagues might have touched on it earlier. You know where you may have had six hours in a day center you maybe not only really getting two. Mm-hmm. And actually by the time a carer would get the person into the car and drive to the, 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 the day center have those two hours and it's time to come home again, you know they're not getting, it's not really a break in that sense. So we don't think there's been enough being done um, in that sense to give carers that bit of flexibility. In relation to carers' assessments, I mean, I have to say, the, the quarterly carers statistics report from April and June shocked me. Um, I, was, I was quite disheartened to see it. Um, we were led to believe that carers' assessments were happening, that they were being done over the phone and by, and by telephone, and by sorry, video conference, and it clearly, clearly wasn't. You know, the fact that carers' assessments were reduced by a third in comparison to the previous year, I mean, there's always been an issue with carers' assessments. We don't have figures exactly at the moment of how many are waiting on carers' assessments or, or reassessments. But, you know, I suppose the general thought would have been that, you know, in a time of absolute crisis, they would be one of the first people you would think of to try and support, because they are supporting the most vulnerable in society. And we do think there should be more done in relation to carers' assessments, certainly something around workforce training, and certainly more around promotion of carers' assessments. And we do feel that not enough carers know about it, but, you know, to request it in the first place or they ask for it. But again, coming back to my point in the statement, it's not a carer's duty to request a carer's assessment, it is the trust duty to statu- the statutory duty to inform carers of the right to have it. So we think there needs to be a bit done on both sides with, with the trust and within the carer's community to, to raise a bit more awareness on that. The other side of the coin, though, is that a lot of carers do say, well, what's the point in doing a carer's assessment? Nothing will come of it. Um, and certainly one of our things that longer term that we want to see is the legislation brought in line, in line at the very least with the rest of the UK, that when you are offered a carer's assessment and a carer's assessment is carried out, that the result of that action plan will be delivered on, and and if it's not, we need to start looking at the unmet need issues, you know, and identifying those and, and thinking about how we can be a bit more innovative to address those unmet needs.
7: Sorry, just a very, a very... Quick point, I suppose, um, just in terms of a potential solution to, you know, help carers make the balance between work and caring. You know, I think uh paid carers leave is a direction that we really need to go in. You, you know, you can look at examples from other parts of the world where this exists and it makes a difference. it makes a massive difference. You know, it, it'll help carers to look after their own health and well-being, you know, it'll result in better outcomes for the person that they're providing care for too. And you know, I understand to a certain extent that, uh, you know, we may shy away from that because um, obviously there's a monetary impact, but as you correctly said, Jonathan, you know, that the, the contribution that carers make, you know, to the health system and to the economy, it massively outweighs any sort of potential cost, you know, f- from looking at something like carers leave. So I really think that needs to be part of the solution, you know, if we want to help um, those who have uh, paid employment and caring responsibilities when they come home.
0: Thank you. Okay, I'll go then to Colin on the phone. Colin, can you uh, are you there for a question, please?
9: Yes, and thanks very much, Chair, and thank you to the guys for the presentations. It's good to see you all, and especially good to see yourself, Orla, and taking part in this presentation today. Um, I suppose my question may be moving. Just I know a lot of the, the people have already responded in terms of the sort of. Um, the, the sort of more general and macro issues about the caring. But I was wondering about the issue of loneliness. Um, I think that loneliness and isolation is, is something that is going to contribute to a greater mental health problem that we're going to face down the line. And I was thinking particularly of those maybe lone um, parents maybe at home um, that, that, that are looking after children. Um, those sort of young people that are at home looking after um, family members and how they're not able to avail of people calling into the house or calling in for that cup of tea and that sort of support that comes to them as carers. And then also, um, to those maybe elderly people in our community, we would have had lots of people calling in and out during the day where the care is just literally a little bit of time being spent with them. And that's not possible because of all the regulations and stipulations that we have at the moment. Is that something that you are aware of and, and are seeing? And, and what sort of a response would you like to see um, to that issue of loneliness?
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Colin. Um, yes, loneliness is definitely something that's been on our radar for a number of years now. It's tricky in relation to carers. Um, recent work that we've done with Joe Cox commission on loneliness showed that more than seven in ten carers in Northern Ireland were experiencing loneliness, and this was pre-COVID. And we have seen an increase in certainly the calls that we're, we're receiving right across our organisation and the discussions we're having with carers, we'd emphasise that, that that is happening. As you rightly say, you know, with um, care packages reduced or, you know, people coming in and out of the home, maybe not as often as we'd have done before. And, you know, up until we had social bubbles, up until we were allowed even that, you know, a lot of carers were just in, in their, their four walls in their home all day, every day with the person they cared for with no other way out. Um, and it was particularly hard for people life, in the lives of rural communities who didn't even have maybe a neighbour just next door to, to give them a hand with anything. And um, so that's definitely you know, on our radar. A couple of us within the coalition are involved in um, work on the loneliness, we've got the All-Party Group on Loneliness as well, and we've got a sort of a coalition, I suppose, development and um, work on that. And that's one of the things we would really like to see. We would like to see a loneliness strategy in Northern Ireland that covers everyone but also particularly for carers and um, so that those issues could be addressed because you as you rightly say the mental health impact of that and um, it's, it's going to be a longer term issue you know we've got some carers that we're speaking to who have not left their house since march you know or if they have it's been out once or twice to the shop to pick something up essential and that's been it so you can imagine that it's not surprising that you know two pairs of mental health has worsened as a result of, of being at home and cooked up during covid so a loneliness strategy is definitely something we want to work towards and i suppose more awareness um of carers in our community would maybe help that you know if people everyone will know somebody who is a carer they might identify themselves as a carer but it'll be your mom maybe looking after your grandma or it'll be you know your friend looking after their child and um, a disability and i think it's important as a community that we start to acknowledge carers that are living amongst us and just to see check in on them see how they are and and sort of see what offers
7: support that they they can give. And I think as well just to comment at the back of that, you know, the the loneliness strategy unfortunately uh, that's another example of a of a policy area where we're falling behind uh, our neighbors, you know, England and Wales uh, both have um quite robust loneliness strategies, you know, that have been developed within the last um sort of few years and you know yeah. Uh, not to suggest yeah. that, that yeah. they're perfect, you know, because it's hard to get that. But at the very least, what that does is, um, is sort of embed that public commitment to tackling loneliness, you know, at the highest sort of policy levels. Uh, and we just don't have that here, you know, and again, I think that's something we need to move, that we need to move towards locally.
0: OK, thank you. And I'm going to Lea, and I just ask the panel to keep answers as brief as possible as well. We are getting quite short of time. So Arleah. Yes,
10: thank you, Chair. Um, so just maybe to follow on from Collins remarks there around the, the and unpalms around mental health and loneliness. The, the, some of those stats that you quoted see that fifty per cent or almost half are at breaking point. Like that is really, really worrying. That's really extreme. And the significance of that shouldn't be lost on anyone. If people are reporting back that they're at breaking point, that is really bad. Um, and I know that there was a programme that was run on Radio Ulster the other day around this issue. Anna Currer was speaking um, uh, uh, to BBC Radio Ulster and he was really open and honest about his experience. And The guy was sounding as if he was losing hope and that it was getting him really, really down. And I think it's reflective of what you've presented in your, your remarks today. Um, so, for me, that's one of, the, so, like, it's one of the most urgent issues. And I don't know if, um, if anyone has had any conversations formally or informally with the Department of Health um, around setting up some form of psychological support. I know that there is the psychological helplines have been set up for um, health and social care workers, but maybe could we explore um, the demand on that service, which I'm sure there is a great demand, but could that be extended to carers, Or could a separate psychological support helpline be um, set up uh, specifically for carers? But I think that that needs to be done as a matter of urgency, and it is going to be a longer-term thing that we're dealing with as well. Um, I know that I met with a Mental Health Champion a week or two ago, and I think this issue is on her agenda also, so I'm not sure if you spoke with Siobhan O'Neill, maybe to try and get some support um, with, with getting that psychological um, helpline or wh- whatever you can get put in place, but just whatever help you can get um, to try and get something set up. And I'm happy to have a conversation with you outside of today's committee meeting um and then maybe just um a question is around older carers. um is the department of health putting um any provisions in place to support carers at the minute who are in the vulnerable category themselves thank you
4: um i'm gonna take uh the first bit of that uh just to talk about the this issue of loneliness and isolation of carers, and you'll be aware that our organisation specifically supports families who are caring for someone who has a serious mental illness, and people with a serious mental illness. The carers of those family of those people tend to be very, very isolated because of the stigma that's still associated in our society, and and basically the the, the, the trajectory is stigma, isolation, loneliness for the carer. And that's really part and parcel of what we would want to see a focus on in the coming years, even through the new mental health strategy. And with the Inter-Mental Health Championship, one's looked at this as well. And if we can look at somehow um, having a big focus in our society on stigma, that would really be the start of focusing on addressing loneliness for carers. Um, Ironically, one of the things that's come out of the pandemic in terms of addressing stigma Is the kind of normalizing of psychological distress and that's something that i think we should be working on as well is that it's okay and it's actually a normal psychological response to feel distressed in the face of a global pandemic and the more that all of us can talk about our own levels of distress and be um, happy to be open and honest about the pressures that we feel that opens the doors it builds a language in our society where people are able to talk about how they're feeling and that really is the first strike at uh, dealing with with loneliness stigma isolation and outside of that i I think your idea and what you what you've suggested there about uh, having a bit of a look at how the the numbers and on the psychological support services for the social and healthcare staff. I haven't seen any figures that would say what the uptake on that is and whether people are finding it beneficial, but it certainly would be interesting to see if that could be extended as a support line in some way for unpaid carers. Um, I would be, it would be very interesting to see and I'm sure my colleagues would agree with that.
11: Okay, thank you. I'm going to go now to Alan. Uh, thanks, sir. It it, uh, it goes without saying that carers sacrifice many aspects of their own lives, uh, and I think you have to experience it yourself or see it within your own family to appreciate the the commitment involved. But would there be a group of carers who, out of a sense of duty, uh, are reluctant uh, to hand responsibility over uh, for the care of their loved ones, uh, even for short periods, to someone else, particularly to someone? who may be a stranger, and has there been a piece of work done to try to convince some carers that for the sake of their their own physical and mental health, they need to accept third-party support and that it is not a sign of failure or something for them to feel guilty about?
7: I'm happy to, to take that if, if the panel's alright. Yeah, um, you've, you've raised such an important point, actually. And I think um, this is quite common for most carers, but especially when you get into the sort of older age groups and you're looking at uh, spousal carers, potentially, you know, there is that real sense of, you know, as Clareanne hinted at earlier, I'm not a carer. You know, I'm I'm just a husband or a wife, and this is my duty. You know, to fulfil this caring role and to keep going until the absolute end. You know, until breaking point and beyond, because you know that, that's that's part of the role. That's what I signed up for. And actually, um, what what I've heard speaking to some carers for people with conditions like dementia whenever it gets to a stage maybe where they have to look at sort of putting that person into, into a care home, whether that's for a temporary period or not, they actually describe it, um, it's almost akin to a bereavement, that you know, they feel that they're not just losing that sort of day-to-day contact, but it's almost like being bereaved of the person, just because you know prior to that, the caring role was just so all encompassing. So you're absolutely right that this is a major issue, but in terms of how to get around it, um, I'm not really sure, to be honest, because that sort of sense of duty and commitment that so many people feel to the people that they care for—it's um, very hard to break, understandably. Thank you. Thank you.
12: Jerry. Thanks, chair. Thanks, panel. Um, just just two quick uh, points. The first one is obviously—I um, mean, this is work that people Kurt are doing. It. It's work. It's labour, and they're paid a pittance, if anything at all, for it. I think it would be unacceptable in many other services that people were paid uh, so little uh, for their work. Um, So does the panel have any views on a wage uh, for cars to recognise the important work that they do for society? Uh, The second point uh, in question, um, I don't know if the panel is aware of this, but something I want to raise with them and and if they heard anything about it, they would be interested in their views. Um, I've heard of constituents of mine who formerly went to uh, day centres, constituents with learning disabilities went to day centres. Um, <clears throat> they were closed obviously because of the pandemic, uh, but when services resumed, the day centres remained closed. Um, and I'm talking about people who went to the White Rock Centre in particular, uh, but have been forced to go to a different centre in a different part of the city. Uh, uh, Expenses coming out of their own pocket and obviously uh, an extra amount of stress for for everybody uh, involved in that. Uh, So obviously a tough period already for those people, but uh, harder with having to go to a different uh, centre. I've raised this with a trust, (coughs) uh, Belfast Trust already, uh, but to me, um, I think there's warning signs about this because... There was plans previously to close day centres, and they were the trusts were pushed back uh, on that. So, uh, has the panel heard of any of these uh, concerns, or uh, has anything been raised with them about this? Because to me, it seems very worrying and to be concerned if a pandemic is being used potentially to restructure, if not close down services. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jerry. Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. Thanks, Jerry. I'm happy to take the first point in, in relation to the wage for carers and maybe Orla might come in with, with some thoughts on the day centre closures. And um, the wage for carers issues has been around for a long time. There are um, some carers who obviously get carers allowance, but there's only around fifty thousand carers in Northern Ireland who get carers alliance. And to go back to Craig's point earlier about the you know, value of that, you know, it's not very cost effective in the sense of, you know, nobody would work for £1.92 an hour. Over 35 hours a week, and most of our carers are providing care for a lot longer than that. And um, there is definitely a call for, you know, some sort of a wage for carers. And um, but I don't think there's been enough research really done on that and what that would look like and how that might affect um, other aspects of of life as a carer. And um, Orla, maybe you want to talk a little bit about just some of the the day centre closures there but- as well. Um, thanks very much, Karen.
2: Yes, thanks, Jerry, for the question. Um, just uh, We have had actually some discussion among carers about the very interesting thoughts that are coming out around universal basic income. Um, so it might be something you want to have a wee look at, um, the universal basic income group now in Northern Ireland, um, particularly people with dependents, some people have been suggesting might might benefit from that because obviously we've no choice to, but to give up work as parent carers because the state can't meet its obligations to provide Childcare care for children with disabilities and, and also in this situation obviously we're hearing a lot of experiences of, of services being reduced like you say and changed and, and I do know that a, a number of members of the committee have concerns about um, health services particularly being watered down, changed, moved uh, under the auspices of um, emergency responses. Um, we have a number of different experiences reported to us during the delivery of our advocacy service, Jerry, which would be similar to that. Um, and again, um, it's, it's, it's back to what we were saying, what clare was saying originally about involvement, and what Valerie was saying actually about stigma. Um, parent cares of children, young people, and adults with disabilities, there's a huge stigma against disability. In our society, and an assumption um, in children and young people's health and social care services that that parents are passive recipients of care for their children, and there is no involvement, and there is there are certain specific structural barriers to engaging with parents, which means that. Um, there is people with adults with disabilities um, who are having their services changed around like that are at significant risk of not having their voice and their opinions heard in all of those things probably because of communication difficulties but also because their parent care advocates have been silenced and we can take the experiences of the parent carers at Muckamore Abbey um, Hospital um, at the moment um, as evidence of that. So it's it's about a cultural acceptance of the unacceptable, Jerry. really, to be honest. Um, Not in everywhere, not in every organization, certainly not in every center or school, but it's there and it's purely because there is no mechanism by which those adults can have their voices heard. So it's it's something, it's much, much deeper than that. And um, everybody's under pressure, services are under pressure, but the last people to hear about vital services are um, the parent carers, the carers, and also the individuals who are receiving care, who are who rely completely, um, crucially, on these services to maintain their health and well-being and to help them reach their full potential. So, um, it's, it's about people's attitudes, values, and beliefs around day centre services, and the visibility of those since lockdown. Because um, who was it, Naira Wood said that crisis is a tide that goes out, and reveals who's swimming naked and parent carers and carers have been swimming naked for decades sometimes before the lockdown so um we're a wee bit more visible now it's about our invisibility and our, and our silence and our isolation so thanks for the question thank
0: you okay thank you and thank you very sincerely to our panel for briefing us on that on that uh, extensive range of issues and for for highlighting those concerns um I want to wish you all the very best in the time ahead in relation to your very difficult role in supporting the, the issues. And I think the committee will want to continue to see what we can do to try to improve the situation, both short, medium and longer term. I have to say, I think it's a huge job of work for us as a, as a society and as, a, as an institution here in terms of the assembly. So thank you for that. And I wish you all the very best in the time ahead. Cormac Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Okay, members. Um, just in relation to that, there was a, there was a, a call there at the start of that, and, and it does strike me that not a lot has changed, really, and I'm wondering would members consider that we ask for an urgent review of cures services by the department, because I think there's really a need for action now very quickly. Cures have been stretched right to the limit, I, I get an impression here. Go ahead, Paula.
5: Um, I asked the, the Health Minister last week for a around mental health services, especially for people who are uh, carers. And his response was very much around, well, there's quite a lot of um, resources now online. But I didn't get the impression today that that was actually meeting the needs. Might meet the needs of some, but not, not far enough. So I think that, that that would be very helpful.
0: And I, I think there's a sense of where I, I, an urgent, an urgent review of the needs, first of all, and also an urgent review of the delivery by by the trusts, because it seems to be very, very piecemeal. Yeah. And the final, the final thing that struck me during during that was in relation to the motion, the all-party motion, which got good support in the assembly for an urgent uh, for uh, a plan on rebuilding services. Could we ask for an update, maybe, in relation to that plan? Where that plan is at? Members content with that? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, members. Um, moving on then. To our next session. Uh, so we're moving on now to consideration of three statutory rules regarding coronavirus restrictions and face coverings. Um, these will be debated in the assembly in the week beginning 23 November. The examiner of statutory rules has reported on all three and has no issues to raise. I can advise members that departmental officials are here to brief the committee on the regulations and to take questions, and we will then consider each SR in turn as we normally do. I refer members to tabs six to eight of your pack, and um, there is also relevant replies there from the minister regarding issues previously raised at tabs 6.4 and 6.5. So, I would now like to welcome by video link Mr. David Hughes, who is a director in the Department of Health; Mr. Jonathan Boyd, principal officer in the Department of Education; Ms. Linda Buick, principal officer in the Department for Infrastructure and Ms. Liz Redmond, who is Director of Population Health in the Department of Health. So I would now like to invite you uh, to please go ahead and brief our meeting this morning. And my my understanding is that David will brief us on numbers 232 and 239, and then either Jonathan or Linda will brief on 233. So could I ask you, David, to go ahead on on the uh, 232 and 239?
13: Yes, thank you very much. Um, These two uh, sets of regulations are amendments to um, amendment number nine regulations which are the uh, restrictions that were put in place on the 16th of October. So the number 11 and number 12 amendment regulations are relatively small scale amendments to those uh, 16th of October restrictions. Uh, The number 11 Um, clarifies uh, the meaning of um, self-catering accommodation where it's referenced and also includes hostels and similar establishments um, alongside hotels. Um, This is uh, to follow the language used in existing tourism legislation to ensure clarity. Um, There is also an inclusion which allows for individual exercise to be taken um, by somebody who uh, needs a carer or carers to accompany them which had been Uh, made impossible by the previous drafting which is just for um, clarification Um, and it clarifies uh, later on that uh, references to caravans also relate uh, to motorhomes. Finally in the number 11 uh, there's a provision to allow for um, close contact services such as hairdressing and makeup to continue uh, where they're in the context of film and television production. The number 12 uh, uh, amendment uh, regulations Uh, simply uh, allows for physical education to take place in schools, which again the original drafting of the number nine regulations had had prevented, and also ensures um, that uh, where premises adjacent to hospitality premises um, provide uh, seating, that had already been captured in uh, the restrictions but it had been pointed out that it also needs to include other facilities apart from seating, so uh, coverings uh, and so on, allowing people to uh, congregate outside hospitality premises. That then was just captured in a small amendment um, in the the number 12 uh, amendment regulations. That actually is all that these um, amendment regulations do and I'm I'm happy to take any questions or clarify any points on that.
0: Okay. Uh, members' questions in relation to that, I'll go to Jonathan.
8: Thank you, Chair. And I'm not going to rehearse a lot of probably what was said in, in the Chamber last week, given my opinion on the general uh, generality of the, the regulation. I suppose probably it makes it even more ridiculous today, the fact being their, their retrospective nature that they essentially expire tonight. Uh, so I suppose probably my point will focus on a technical matter in terms of the, uh, the regulation itself. These rules relate to, to supplementary changes to regulations, and I think the PE issue has highlighted the need for, for greater consideration of the ramifications of, of this legislation and the pace in which it, it, it comes into effect. What can we do to make the original regula- regulations more effective from the get-go, and avoid the need for technical changes, uh, as we are seeing such through these regulations, coming to a committee for scrutiny on the very day that they would expire?
13: Well I think it's it's worth bearing in mind that when preparing regulations in, um, in, in any sphere the process that would it would normally take place over weeks if not months and there would be many stages of ensuring that um, uh, all possible consequences have been fully bottomed out. The uh, regulations that were made and these as you say these, these are uh, amendments to the number nine regulations made on 16th of October the decisions taken in respect of those uh, regulations were taken only very uh, a few days earlier, and it's simply a matter of the speed that they had to be prepared um, and the number of areas of life which they touch upon. Um, the sheer uh, scale of how if, uh, the effect that they're having means that um, some of the consequences of the uh, original restrictions would not necessarily have come to the fore in the process of getting the uh, regulations drafted. Um, as it happens, um, some, I mean, for example, the, the, the PE one, um, when it was spotted, then the number 12 regulations came into into place as quickly as it was really possible to, uh, to, for it to happen. Um, uh, and it, it, it is simply a case that these restriction regulations are having to be made at such extraordinary pace that there will, at times, be occasions when. And specific issues are not immediately identified. To do it differently, I think in normal circumstances, of course, we would all want regulations to be made very carefully in conjunction with all the relevant stakeholders and for a very uh, a proper process of examination of every line to ensure that they're completely effective before they're made. But in the current circumstances, of course, we are having to move very quickly. And i'm not sure whether there is an easy answer to how we could do it differently in the current circumstances
8: just, just to follow on with that and briefly what is the level of cross departmental consultation before a regulation such as these are, are made because it strikes me as this is something that should be uh, flagged up quite early in the process given its uh, cross departmental nature
13: yeah well there there, there are um Cross de- there's a, a cross-departmental group that meets every week, um, drawing in people from every department. I think every department with an interest in in uh, the COVID restriction regulations and other regulations, and generally about the the, the approach to um, to the coronavirus restrictions. Um, they, for the most part, there may be one or two representatives from each department, and even then, the speed with which the, um regulations have to be made does not necessarily mean that everyone spots everything as we can see and i think that's that that's that's understood and we would love it to be the case that we get everything right at the first instance it's also worth bearing in mind that it has to be a two-way process in the development of the regulations in that um those of us who are working on the preparation of the regulations need to know from departments what the issues are that may be arising but those departments also need to know from us who are preparing the regulations what the policy intent is and what the intention is on what needs to be restricted and that will sometimes depend on um, absolutely crystal clear policy direction from ministers and from the executive who've taken that decision but the executive's decision may not in every instance have touched upon every single detail. So there is then a process of establishing whether the principles behind the executive decision can be applied in a, in, say, in a, in a very minute way, or um, the, the lead policy department may not know of an instance which the regulations uh, cut across. So last week I briefed on the number 10 amendment regulations, which amongst other things, allowed for um uh, caravan parks to be used in an emergency and that came to light because uh, a district council literally phoned up and said we have families who are in a caravan because they've been burnt out of their house we didn't know that and we wouldn't necessarily have known that that was something we needed to address but that then is something that had to be addressed
0: okay thank you i'm going to go then to pam
3: Thank you chair and thank you for your uh, attendance at committee today um, i suppose uh, just to say from the outset that uh, i certainly completely appreciate the nature of these emergency uh, the emergency legislation and it's, it's kind of it seems to be really firing back at us now after all these months it's it's more kind of wearing uh week on week when we're we're talking about um Rules and regulations, which really are about to expire or have already passed, so it's, it is quite frustrating. But I understand um, where the department is coming from that as well. I suppose uh, just a quick one for you. Um, I certainly would be interested to learn what the process would be. Should, for instance, the requirement for children to wear face covering on public transport after today
0: be retained? Um, sorry, sorry, Pam. Um, there's someone there. Someone there maybe needs to mute a phone on our panel. We're getting some noise. And Pam, also, it maybe we're we're doing the face mask one as uh, we'll have a briefing on the face mask one. So we'll bring in whichever whoever's briefing. But if you have a question for David on the face mask, that's fine. But okay,
3: we'll see if David wants to answer it. But I want to ask if that was the case, if if we're going with um, continued. Uh, Wearing a face mask in that in that particular um, instance are fresh regulations then required come
13: tomorrow. I'm sorry that I'm not able to answer any of the points on the face mask regulations. It may well be colleagues who are talking about those ones will be able to answer that point.
0: Okay. Yeah, and, and I, ha- I had specifically uh, I thought it better for members to to address their questions to you, and then we'll go on to face masks, so just to make that clear to members. So we'll, we'll deal with, with the, these uh, 11 and 12, and then we'll go to the other one. So, okay, Pam, um, going then to Paula.
5: Um, thank you. Um, I'm just gonna follow up on Jonathan's question around cross-departmental consultation in terms of regulations, and I'm specifically focusing on the outdoor seating outside businesses. Um, I was contacted the, at the weekend um, by a coffee shop owner on the armor Road, we is further on up the road from a new what's called a parklet that the Department for Infrastructure has introduced outside some coffee shops. Um, and the businesses are not at fault and the residents themselves aren't necessarily at fault either. But the other business told me that there were 30 people sitting on the sort of bench of this new parklet, which in many ways is not anybody's fault except maybe the fact that the Department for Infrastructure has, a, has introduced this in the last six weeks. So I'm just wondering to what extent these regulations then would cover where, where departments are not protecting their own infrastructure, so to speak, in, in areas where they're actually allowing people to congregate, if that makes sense?
0: You're on mute. You're on mute there, um, David, sorry.
13: Um, I think I just want to go back um, to the number nine regulations where this reference to Seating uh, uh, is uh, is made, and the reference there is where seating is made available for customers. Um, And I think uh, I think we can draw a distinction in real life between a coffee shop that um, leaves some garden chairs outside uh, that helps people to stop, um, and a coffee shop that just happens to be outside, happens to be opposite a set of uh, of of benches. the, uh, and, I, and I've been through the city centre and have seen this, uh, and can make a clear distinction um, in, my, in my own mind, um, I recognise that it is possibly not helpful in the restriction um, upon uh, the public of, from congregating after having bought a cup of coffee if there is a row of benches immediately opposite um, a coffee shop that then takes individual, it is for individual responsibility to prevent that becoming a congregation of people. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not then the responsibility of the coffee shop. I think what the restriction regulations are seeking to do is to ensure that um, uh, business owners are not um, uh, finding a loophole over the restriction on their premises by allowing congregation adjacent to their premises. Does that make, is that the distinction that, that you'd recognise?
5: No, I, and I do recognise that distinction, and I say, I'm not blaming the businesses nor mm-hmm. the people who are sitting on it. My point is the timing in that this parklet has only with its benches have only been introduced in the last few weeks. I think it was about six weeks ago, and I suppose it's that mismatch between what the Department for Infrastructure are doing and maybe what the Department of Health are doing in terms of these health protection regulations. So in many ways I'm maybe just more flagging it up for you mm-hmm. that it's maybe something that if they're rolling this out in other parts of the city that they maybe should cease at this stage.
0: Thank you. Uh, Thank you Paul, yep, thank you. I'm moving on then, I'm going over to the phones and I'm going to Colin there, has a hand raised on the phone. Are you there, Colin?
9: Yes, indeed, thanks very much, Chair. And again, Chair, through through no fault of anybody in the committee and no fault of any of the people that are presenting, um, this is another example of us having a wonderful conversation about something, but it's not going to achieve anything because, as has been pointed out, the regulations that we're discussing expire tonight. And I suppose maybe if I could go to, to, to the panel that are there, um, it sort of just came to me that you're, you're the experts. You're, you're the civil service top level. Um, David, you, you highlighted there that it be, this process would usually be used to try and examine legislation and that it would be a process of months, maybe even longer. Um, but on this occasion, on this occasion, we are using it for um, something to be done in a very short period of time, and is time-bound, and then has an impact. So, what would be a better method for us to be able to raise issues, the executive to introduce legislation, for us to have an input to that? Yeah.
0: Go ahead, David.
13: I, I think, I think in the current context. Um, I'm not sure whether there is necessarily an obvious better way of doing it than this where the decision making process has to, be, has to take place very close to the point at which the new uh, regulations have to be in place. Um, in that case, um, there will necessarily be a very short space of time between a policy decision being taken and the regulations being put in place. And whilst um, uh, officials can work as hard as they can to ensure that the regulations cover all bases and fully uh, reflect the policy position um, that has been taken, we we have found inevitably there will be some gaps. Um, and, And fortunately, in a way, we have also equally speedy methodology for plugging those gaps. I think if we were to have a slower process of developing these regulations we're less likely to have gaps but we would also have a very slow process of amending or adjusting or developing those regulations as circumstances change and of course we're in an environment where circumstances are changing constantly and that is why decisions are taken as close to the point at which the decision needs to be implemented as possible.
9: Let me turn, just to ask a second question. David, would you be aware of what the process is in Scotland, Wales or in London and are they following a similar process to what we're doing here or are you aware if they have different processes or a different alternative to what we um, are
13: doing here? I must admit I don't know the detail of how the other jurisdictions are operating. I think uh, my recollection is that certainly in Westminster they have worked in a very similar way to this but that has changed but I apologize not being able to put that say that confidently I, I'm not absolutely sure what the different processes are
9: okay that's right maybe chair, sure we could. that's something we could ask the assembly research team to do is maybe to come back with a, a short piece of research telling us how the other jurisdictions are managing this just to, to make sure that we're utilizing the best possible way of doing that
0: yep Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll put that in as a proposal after the session. Thank you, Colin. I'm going then to, and I suppose I just do want to say that while undoubtedly, and I recognise the frustration around us discussing uh, regulation and amendments that have now expired in some cases, to me, I would hope that the learning and the lessons that are being learned as we go through are being dynamically built into the, the situation. So I, I would hope that there's some value in that sense. Um, anyway, going to Jerry. Thanks,
12: Chair. I suppose a general point about going forward, I think it needs to be raised. Um, I mean, all regulations that come to us are are basically deemed to have no equality issues. Um, You may be aware that this morning the the policing board uh, questioned whether the PSNI approach um, in response to the June 6th Black Lives Matter uh, protests were uh, questioned whether their approach was lawful and have called for a review of all the fines. That's the policing board. Um, I want to ask, what is the equality screening process before these regulations are drafted? Are they fit for purpose? Uh, And I suppose just to detail what they are, because it's pretty stark if the policing board is questioning whether the the PSNI approach was lawful uh, on that day. Um, It should ring massive alarm bells for the department, and it appears to me to be more than just gaps or an oversight, and points to structural problems with uh, possibly these regulations uh, as well as structural racism in our society so a question uh, on that please
13: Certainly, so you'll you as you say there has been no formal impact assessment prepared on each of the regulations as they de- as they're developed however um, in the development of the policy and the regulations which flow from that the proportionate nature of uh, what restrictions should be put in place is inevitably a large part of the um, Uh, thinking and the consideration before final policy decisions are taken Um, and it will be a matter of balancing um, uh, the impacts on rights um, generally uh, with the uh, impact of not placing restrictions of these sorts in place um, and the impact then on life uh, given the the nature of the, the the pandemic
12: just a quick reply. I mean, I mean, it's quite uh, stark, really, that, that answer. I mean, the, the, we have a fundamental question about the approach, whether it was lawful, uh, on that day. And I haven't heard uh, from any of the panellists what the process is to make sure regulations are quality screen, what they are. Any commitment to re-look at them in light of this news this is pretty big stuff, so I would like that to be taken away and to be looked at further.
13: Can, can I can I add that um, that uh, the consideration um, of the impact of restrictions and the nature of the restrictions, in light, of, in particular in light of human rights, um, is and has been part of the consideration. But I think there's a recognition um, within the department of the need for a more granular consideration and that um, how that can be done and how that can be done most effectively is something that's currently um, being investigated. Um, And we'll be working with um, DSO and with others to look at how that can be done. So that there can be some assurance that it is not simply, um, let's stick in a line that there has been no assessment and move on. That shouldn't be the approach, but rather um, we recognize that we are treading uh, uh, a very, Uh, careful line here and we want to be able to demonstrate that it's not um, not haphazard.
11: Okay thank you Alan. Uh, Thanks Chairman. Uh, Just uh, I mean these uh, collective uh, policy decisions of the Executive uh, are obviously taken to restrict the transmission of the virus and therefore uh, to ultimately save lives Um, and you have the responsibility then of of putting those policy decisions into legislation. Um, Is it fair to say that uh, any undue delay on your part, or indeed uh, the Assembly's part, uh, in uh, delaying putting them into legislation could actually result in loss of life? Yep, go ahead, David.
13: I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether I can give you an assurance, but my understanding is that whenever a decision has been taken, it has always been taken with a margin between that decision point and the actual implementation of, say, a new set of restrictions. Um, That's not simply to ensure that the regulations can be drafted. It's to allow the communication with all those who need to understand and uh, adjust what they're doing to the new restriction uh, requirements um as far as i know and and i haven't been involved with this work from the very start but as far as i know um the regulations have always been ready to be put into place at the point at which they are needed
0: thank you okay thank you um
10: yes thanks very much um i'm conscious of what other people have said about the timeline of the regulations brought in but as the chair also explained the hope is that any conversations that are had at committee level um, you know, will will help improve the regulations if they need to be brought in at a future date or, or amended at a future date or whatever. So, just on the, the issue around the the caravans um, and the use of mobile homes, if um, a family's in an emergency, you use the example of um, a family whose home have been um, who have been burnt in a house fire. Um, so they require use of the mobile home, and it's really just to ask, how do you verify? Or manage, um, you know, what an emergency is, you know. So how can you control that? Uh, get the house fair and <laughs> legitimate. And but how, how does the regulation of the department control or manage that?
13: Um, let me make sure I've got the right the, the, the right expression. Um, excuse me, just one moment. Um, <laughs> on caravans. Sorry.
10: You're okay. You're okay, David. Um, <laughs> And I'm sorry, David, my, <laughs> my battery went on my, um, my computer as well, so I haven't
13: got it. <laughs> right, well, the, my, 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 point is, um, my point would be the same, is that, of course, we cannot prescribe every possible instance, um, but I think it's going to have to be a case um, where there would be a common sense understanding of what an emergency would be that would require somebody to stay in a caravan rather than in their home. Um, There have been, I'm sure, occasions when um, uh, the regulations have tried to identify in considerable detail the different circumstances in which something uh, might be allowed. Um, The risk with that is that there is always one uh, example that you hadn't thought of or which is a perfectly fair thing and doesn't appear to be considered um, and I'd note that um, uh, in the number nine regulations for example um, there is a restriction on overnight stays unless somebody has a reasonable excuse and reasonable excuse will include and then there is a list um, but it's also the case that because it says a uh, reasonable excuse will include there may well be other things which are also a reasonable excuse. Um, and I think that is simply um, going to have to be a matter of the interpretation of the regulations in individual cases. Thank
0: you, David. Thank you. And thank you. So I'm going to go across then to uh, either Jonathan or Linda to brief on 233, please. And then we'll take some very quick questions on that. So who is, who's briefing Actually, there?
14: Yeah. I- I'm going to lead off. Can you hear me? Okay. yep, yep,
0: we're hearing you there,
14: okay? Department of Health, yeah. Okay, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to come and talk to you today about this. So I'm gonna begin uh, outlining the changes contained within the new amendment to the face coverings regulations, and then I'll hand to Jonathan Boyd, from the uh, Department of Education, and then he'll hand to Linda Buick from the Department for Infrastructure to provide the rationale behind the decision to mandate the use of face coverings in the context of school transport, particularly. So the health protection coronavirus wearing of face coverings amendment number three regulations, Northern Ireland 2020, were made at 5.30 p.m. on the 29th of October um, and came into force immediately. The Department of Education and the Department of infrastructure's policy objective was to have the regulations in place before school Mm -hmm. resumed on the 2nd of November. So it was not possible to enable committee consideration in advance of that. The purpose of these amendments is to mandate the use of face coverings by post-primary pupils on home to school transport and on public transport. Previous amendments to face covering legislation had extended the requirement to use a face covering to all buses, coaches, and taxis. An exemption existed for children under 13 years of age. Amendments to the regulations therefore were needed uh, so that only children who were not yet at secondary school would be exempt from wearing a face covering on school transport or public transport. In drafting the amendment regulation, the Department of Health sought to use definitions and terminology from existing legislation where possible. The amendment substituted the exemption that existed already for children who are under the age of 13 to replace that with junior pupil not yet receiving secondary education. The term junior pupil is contained in the Education and Libraries Northern Ireland Order 1986 and means a child who is not Uh, who has not attained the age of 11 years and 6 months. However, the Department of Education wished to specify that children at primary school should not have to wear a face covering. So therefore, the term junior pupil not yet receiving secondary education exempts children under 11 years and 6 months who are not yet at secondary school from wearing face covering. The exemptions that already exist in the regulations remain unchanged um, for medical reasons and others. Uh, so I think that's all I was going to start with. And I'll hand now to Jonathan Boyd, Department of Education, to pick up from there.
0: Thank you. OK, Jonathan. You're, you're on mute, Jonathan. Yeah, we're, we're not hearing you there, Jonathan. Just... Can you check that your system's not on mute at your end, Jonathan, please? Go ahead there, Jonathan. No, we're still not hearing you, Jonathan. Is there an on-off on your headset? we're not we're not hearing you Jonathan we're not hearing you um Linda do you feel you could take questions in relation to that and we'll come back to Jonathan
15: um yes yeah, certainly I can give the DFI um perspective on this um, um yeah so from DFI was, so as you know face coverings were made mandatory on public transport for all passengers aged 13 and over from the 10th of July so after the introduction of their requirements, uh, TransLink reported that the wearing of face coverings by passengers increased from about 10 per cent up to 85 per cent across all services. Um, so as you know, the requirements when they were introduced included an exemption from school, for school transport. So after the return of schools, TransLink were highlighting concerns about low numbers of school children wearing face coverings, both on public transport where they were mandatory and on school transport where they were strongly recommended. And those concerns were echoed by parents and members of the public through correspondence to the Department. So in light of the increase in the positive case numbers and with the view that maybe steps could be taken to increase the level of compliance by school children, Minister Mallon was fully supportive of removing the exemption for school transport and introducing a uniform approach to the mandatory use of face coverings both on public and school transport. And She was also fully supportive of changing the requirement um, from the age of 13 to all post-primary school children, as that would help provide clarity for young people. and It would also make it easier to identify those young people who should be wearing a face covering so that education and encouragement efforts can be targeted um, appropriately.
0: Okay, thank you. I'll just check with Jonathan there very quickly. Can we hear you, Jonathan? No, I'm going to go to members', members questions. And members, can just to emphasise this is the, this is the section on face masks. So, I'd like questions specifically on this. In terms of general process issues that have already been dealt with by David, my questions will not go over those again. So, uh, have members any questions then for the panel on the face masks? Paula.
5: Um, thank you. Um, my, mine is in relation to the more general um, issue that I raised last week about the blanket application of the wearing of face masks. And if you look at the Department of Health's key graphic. Um, they talk about keep distance, wear face masks, wash hands. We then received a letter uh, following last week's meeting, and I think that was contradictory in parts. Um, and so I'm just wondering, has there been any update in terms of the discussion around wearing face masks? Because this is another this is another amendment that actually introduces new rules and, and particular and aspects of it. And, and I think that a more general approach to just wearing face masks indoors um, would, would, would actually be easier in terms of compliance.
0: Thank you, Pamela. I'll take
14: that. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you for that um, uh, for that feedback. Um, I think the, the difficulty with applying this to all indoor settings is that there are some indoor settings where it would actually not be appropriate to have people <clears throat> with face coverings, particularly if people are um, in these settings for prolonged periods of time. Um, So it's felt that that could actually be counterproductive. So we've tried to be quite targeted in where we've mandated this, Though continued with our advice that people should consider using face coverings. There's also still settings where there can be gatherings of of larger numbers of people where the um, regulation still applies around risk assessment, and it might be that part of that risk assessment indicates that a face covering would be an appropriate measure for the organiser of that gathering, whether it be a, a, an employment, place of employment or education, um, w- would advise that face covering should be worn. Um, so this will be constantly kept under review. Um, but at this stage, the science isn't telling us that that is the best approach to take at the, this point in time. Okay,
0: thank you. Um, Jerry, Just quickly, uh,
12: we got a correspondence right, about the face, mark, face mask working group. You've said that correctly. Um, uh, can you tell us who's on it and how many people from uh, different departments are on it, please?
14: I can certainly get back to you on that. Um, I haven't got a list of the attendees, but I know it is a cross-departmental group that is um, chaired by the executive office.
16: Thank
8: you. Okay, uh, um, Jonathan. Uh, thank you, Chair. And uh, given that when we look at these regulations, the face-covering ones that we're looking at at the moment, we see. No public consultation, no quality impact, no regulatory impact, and we understand because of the speed why why that is the case. Has there any consideration been given? And I particularly think of schools, uh, where potentially young people who are not as publicly aware of the um, hygiene element of wearing a mask and the proper use of wearing a mask, that potentially there could be counter it could be counterproductive in terms of the spread of the virus has there been any work carried out into looking at the impact of improper use of masks yeah that's a very
16: interesting
14: question um certainly i asked these questions early on on our journey on face coverings and my understanding is that the science that points towards the net benefit of of face coverings in certain settings builds in an element of human behaviour that means that it's not ideally applied. Um, so that, that is my understanding. Um, so in terms of very specifically looking at the impact of improper use, so we know that improper use might cause virus to be transmitted from mouth to surface and, uh, and also it might in fact cause people to have a false sense of security. I'm not aware of any specific studies around that. Um, but certainly, it's something that we can ask the chief scientist to um, to be on the lookout for.
8: Okay, I would appreciate that because I have considerable concern that uh, with mask use now probably becoming more an issue for people to ensure that they're uh, covering a, a regulatory requirement that the dangers also have to be assessed regarding the, uh, potential uh, transfer of the virus. By a surface not clean, touching it with hands, reusing the same mask over and over again. I think these are things that really have to be given careful consideration to, because we don't want to be counterproductive.
0: Thank you. I'm going to Arlea and then I'll go and finish with Pat Sheehan on the phone. So I'm going to Arlea first.
10: Yes, thank you, Chair. Um, just quickly, I know I had raised this at last week's committee meeting as well, um, mm. in reference to um, the change in the regulations around the face masks and I know that the Minister did um, respond in writing I think, to the committee, and he might have referenced it in the Chamber uh, during the week also. Um, but I think there's still an issue around uh, you know, the messaging being inconsistent. If you're now telling children of a certain age that it's mandatory and essential, they have to wear a mask on their school transport or on transport, but you know not whenever they're going into a retail shop. I know some of the rationale was that you know, the children um, are sitting in closer proximity to one another than they may be um, with another consumer in a shop. But has any other consideration or conversations been had around that issue, around the and especially for children at, at, at quite a young age? Yep. Parliament. Yeah,
14: thank you. And thanks for that, that observation, which we were aware of. Um, We do think that the circumstances, just going back to why the difference, the circumstances in retail setting are different from um, children getting on board school transport. Um, So there is now good uh, protocol in place in in a lot of retail environments where social distancing can be maintained. So we were more concerned about that, you know, people crowded into an enclosed place where ventilation mightn't be so great and so forth. Um, so that's sort of the rationale behind behind it. Um, also, the fact that it is easier to communicate when uh, a group of people are uh, dressed in a post-primary school uniform um, where the boundary lies between the requirement to wear a face covering or not to wear a face covering. So if we'd stuck with 13 as an age, that wouldn't have been workable in the school transport situation, and I'm sure Jonathan can say more about that. Um, this is something that we will look at in the um, face coverings working group, and I think that's something we did um, reply to you in writing on that, um, and that group hasn't yet met again. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a valid observation which we need to um, now reflect on.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And I'll go to Pat and then I'll come back to Pam on her previous question that she had. So, Pat?
17: Thanks, Chair. Um, there has been compelling evidence for quite a while now that the wearing of face coverings does considerably reduce the transmission of the virus and there are countries which have been very successful in reducing the transmission particularly in southeast asia and there has been a culture there for quite a while of wearing face masks i suppose that it comes from their experience in, in dealing with other epidemics, such as SARS, MERS, swine flu, avian flu, and so on. Uh, has the department been involved in any research around the uh, situations in which face coverings are worn in any of those countries? Uh,
14: I would say, first of all, that the Wearing of face coverings is just one tool um, that's being applied um, here and in those countries as well. So there's lots of other factors around their success, I would suggest. Um, Yeah, yeah. So it's just one one element. In terms of specific research into that, I would have to refer that to the chief scientist to see if he's aware of any. Um, But I know that there's certainly a lot of interest in what has created the success in other countries, um, so we can certainly ask that question of him.
0: Okay, thank you. And Pam?
3: Yep, thank you. Um, thank <clears throat> you, panel. So I was asking earlier whether um, um, to learn what the process would be, should, for instance, the requirement for children to, to wear face covering on public transport after today be required? Um, so would fresh regulations need to be brought in?
14: Well, we separated at the end of July, we separated all of the face coverings out into a separate set of regulations that we've now been amending in parallel. So the the only face coverings requirement that is embedded in the number nine amendments to the main restrictions regulations are the wearing of face coverings in the places of worship. So that's the only part of the wearing of face coverings requirements that would fall with the number nine amendment. And we will have to be mindful of that, of course.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, and uh, thank you, officials. There, there are a number of key pieces of information that you have committed to forward to the committee, and we'd like those as quickly as possible, please. But otherwise, I want to thank you for your attendance today, for your addressing of the questions and answering those that, that you were uh, in a position to, and I think that has been useful. I have to say, so thank you very much and uh, all the best for now and good luck for the future. Thank you. thank you. Okay, Members, I'm going to now go through each of them, as we normally do. So, uh, SR 2020 232. This is the one that clarifies the meaning of self-care and accommodation, provides for a person to take part in indoor exercise, with a sport with a cure or sport with cure or curers, requires a closure of hostels and similar establishments, provides that exemption in relation to caravans and motorhomes, and provides that hairdressing, makeup and other close contact services may operate in film and television production and define certain terms. So Those came into force on the 29th of October. Have members any further issues they wish to raise in relation to that? If not, then can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020 forward slash 232, the health protection, coronavirus restrictions number two, amendment number 11, regulations NA 2020, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly. Are we agreed? Great.
9: Great. thank Chair, you. Members. Can I just ask, again, sorry, just on the, the procedure This again. So are those amendments the ones that we're, passed, were passing as a committee now, they lapse tonight, but we're sending it to the, appro- for the Assembly next week to approve something that's already fallen?
0: Yes, I think that's the case. Uh, Clare?
18: Just to advise that I, I'm not being specific to this one, but in many cases, there are regulations that are confirmed uh, despite various provisions having lapsed. You saw that with Amendment 8 in relation to the Derry and Straban area, because there were a couple of definitions that had been tweaked, which have longer-lasting effect and don't fall. And therefore, if the Department uh, is seeking to confirm things, sometimes there can be reasons like that.
0: And I will remind members we have written to the executive, to the force, asking them to look at the process in raising that. So our members agreed.
9: Sure, Chair, can, can I just have it noted in the minutes that I think that it's, it's somewhat um, strange that we're suggesting to the assembly that they pass something that has lapsed, but it, I, and I appreciate it, but I'm just, I think we need to continue to make this point until the executive comes back. This was some alternative method, but thank you for taking that point, thank you.
8: Thank you. Very quick, John. Now, again, on the same vein, Chair, I totally agree with what uh, Colin was saying, and he did suggest about a, a paper. I support an urgent paper regarding how other uh, institutions within the UK and indeed the British Isles are, are dealing with these. Is it the same? Yep, we've already agreed that.
0: Okay, so members agreed. Thank you. Number seven, SR 2020 forward slash two three three. So this uh, sr extends the requirement to wear a face covering to post primary school children on school transport and on other public transport those regulations came into operation on the 29th of october do members have any further issues they wish to raise in connection with the statutory rule thank you and then i could a- can i ask members to agree formally that the committee for health has considered sr 2020/233 the health protection Coronavirus wearing of face coverings amendment number three regulations 2020, and recommends that it be confirmed by the assembly. Are we agreed?
7: agreed. Thank you.
0: Moving on to SR 2020/239. So I remind members that these regulations provide for physical education to take place in schools and other educational settings, and that tables or other facilities in an area adjacent to hospitality premises are to be treated as part of the premises. The regulations came into operation on 3 November and are subject to confirmatory resolution. Have members any further issues to wish to raise? No. Thank you. So, If not, then can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020 Forward slash two three nine, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Number Two Amendment Number Twelve Regulations Twenty Twenty, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly. Are we agreed? Yes. Members are agreed. Okay, thank you, members. I'm going to take a very short break there, and then we'll come back to our next item, which will be uh, some of the SIs before us this morning. So, could we come back there for eleven thirty-five, please, for a restart? thank you okay i'm just checking there patricia are you online with us now at present patricia i'm checking again if you can hear us at present over the system on the video conference i
18: can i can hear you now
0: Okay, we're, we're hearing you there now as well. So I'm going to go first of all to Pam Cameron, Patricia, our Deputy Chair, Pam Cameron, for a question on this statutory instrument. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Patricia. Uh, hope you can hear us okay now. Um, so, in relation to the import export provisions and the commitment to unfettered access, means there'll be no additional checks or processes imposed by GB on bloods, organs, tissues, or cells moving from MI to GB, but no such protection on GB to MI movements. Can uh, yeah. you give assurances that delays will be avoided and patient outcomes protected as a result of the new layer of checks east-west? That would be the first question. And The second one is um, in around the administrative steps that are uh, mentioned, and will the NHS have to fit the bill for those administrative st- steps?
18: Thank you. Uh, thank you, Deputy Chair. Um, I understand that most of the um, places in Northern Ireland that would um, import or bring in products from the UK already have um, import arrangements in place. For blood, there's um, some, but rarely, imports from the rest of the GB for blood and blood products, as Northern Ireland is almost self-sufficient in blood products. And so for those few um, times that those would be coming into Northern Ireland, um, we don't believe that there should be any risk to patients. Um, What we are possibly looking at and and is sort of highlighted as a risk for um, exit day is transporting. Obviously because they come by road and boat, it's to ensure that there's no um, problems in, in getting those products across from Um, GB to Northern Ireland. Um, Organs um, predominantly move the other way. Um, We in Northern Ireland have um, kidney transplants, but all other transplants are carried out in the rest of GB. Um, So we don't expect there to be um, patient impacts around these areas. Um, in terms of the administrative steps we're still waiting on um dhsc in england to provide us with um the guidance for the administrative procedures um the trust etc already import uh import products and the uh, nibits also import occasionally blood products from the republic uh, so the the processes are in place already uh, um again we expect that they understand the administrative procedures and um, we do understand that there's one tissue um establishment that may need to implement new um administrative procedures and we have asked where the um the impact the financial impact will be born and um, but we don't have an answer to that as yet
8: okay thank you jonathan Thanks Chair and I suppose I deeply regret the need to, to, to look at these regulations here today I suppose probably it, it outlines uh, cl- quite clearly the very damaging impact of the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, and the very fact that we're talking about and the words within the statutory instrument look upon blood, organs and tissues, uh, cells coming from, from GB and NI to be treated as import I think is quite insulting. Um, And I suppose probably that leads me on to my question. The briefing paper says that the Northern Ireland hospitals or facilities receiving blood or organs uh, from GB will need to go through extra administration. If this is the case when EU and GB rules are the same, how much worse will the impact be if standards eventually diverge and further checks will be needed?
18: At the moment, you're quite correct, if the arrangements are the same and the standards are the same. Um, where the divergence may occur is, as you rightly said, the um, the regulations that are making cars around blood tissue and organs has come back to the respective devolved administrations from Europe. Um, and because we in Northern Ireland are having to maintain um, standards with Europe, if there's changes within Europe in any of these areas, Northern Ireland will have to maintain those standards which will potentially be a divergence from the rest of the UK as GB also has the ability to change to react to potential um, issues that they may have to amend their quality and safety standards around blood tissue and organs. However, to to try and minimize and eliminate that, the devolved administrations and the DHSC are working together to put forward a common framework which will be coming to you shortly to give you some uh, indication and outline of what that will entail. To put in place um, agreements and communications and consultations around the divergence issue to ensure that as far as possible there should not be divergence within the UK um, internal market. It also means that when the UK, if the UK is looking to make any trade agreements outside of uh, the EU or uh, in this area, where there may be blood products, for example, um, that those are maintained on a nationwide basis.
8: OK, thank you. Just a quick follow-up, Chair. Has the potential implications of the Internal Markets Bill been factored into as to how it would apply to such a rule? A sorry. It, because the...
18: It's a slightly different definition of products and we don't expect that there are any uh, implications of the internal markets bill. Um, that it's not a, a good as such. It's a product of human origin, so it has slightly different um, quality and safety and movement standards as far as I understand. but I will double check that and come back to you. Thank
0: you. Okay, thank you, Patricia. And I suppose for me the uh... The, the need for these types of measures are not flowing so much from the protocol, but indeed flowing from Brexit. And The protocol is required as a result of Brexit in order to protect, to protect uh, our, our markets here and our food production, and all of those are very important, and, and the health production. Um, but Do these SA's ensure that we will keep dynamic alignment with uh, European Union law in this area in line with the protocol?
18: yes it has provided for um the ability to make regulations in respect of eu changes the protocol itself sets out that the um we can in northern ireland and the Secretary of state make amendments um similarly to the two two powers um in the eu communities act to keep alignment with any new directives and that come in through or amendments to directives through europe um, so those powers are there to ensure that we can stay in alignment with the EU and that is included in this. It also has removed um, and in doing so has made the regulation changing individually in changing regulations in this area to GB alone, which means that in Northern Ireland we can't make any amendments um, sort of minimising EU standards.
0: Okay, thank you. And um, it, it states that the commitment to unfettered access means there will be no additional checks or processes imposed by Britain on blood, organs, tissues, or cells moving from the north to Britain, and can I ask, was that agreed with the EU through the joint and specialized committees, or is that a unilateral British government decision? I don
18: 't know the answer to that, but I can find out for you and come back okay. to you on that okay, please do
0: and um there's also there's also a, a question around, it states that regulators work with licensed and authorised establishments in the north, they, that they will work with them to support them as needed to prepare. So, between this SIB being led and the end of the year, is six weeks enough to provide that work and support that those establishments will need,
18: in your opinion? Um, in my opinion, I believe that most of the, the- standards and the ability to provide the the work that is necessary is already there. Uh, DHSC have been in contact with the establishment um, and will provide directly support to ensure that any other movements are um, in place for the end of the year. As I have said before, Northern Ireland is predominantly self-sufficient in blood. Um, and will sometimes bring in blood and blood products from GB, and very occasionally from, uh, from the Republic of Ireland. Um, however, uh, organs will predominantly move the other way from Northern Ireland to GB. Um, so, a six weeks, while is short, um, and it's probably adding pressure, it is doable.
0: Okay. Um, and in relation to the reference to competent authorities, Uh, that will those competent authorities be taking on roles similar to national member states competent authorities in other eu countries
18: yes the, the the competent authorities will maintain for northern ireland the um the the same uh conditions as they do currently okay so any any they do for eu currently they will maintain those for northern ireland
0: okay and is the is the some impact of all of that will safety and quality standards remain unchanged with this sa
13: as of
18: first of january yes in the future and um, this as i may well be uh, there may be amendments in future but this will maintain um quality and safety standards for blood tissue and organs as they are currently from the 1st of January.
8: Okay, thank you. Quick point, John. Just a brief question through you in terms of, and the official may not have this, but is there any breakdown of current provision to Northern Ireland of blood tissue and organs in terms of whether it come from GB or indeed wider Um, Europe?
18: I have some figures. Um, I can provide that to you in a bit more detail. Um, My understanding is that we are, predominantly self-sufficient in blood in Northern Ireland with some movement from GB and very minimal amount from ROI. Um, Organs: the UK, is predominantly self-sufficient with including ROI in that um, agreement on organs and organ transplants. Um, But I can provide you with probably a bit more detail on that. Um, But I'm not aware that Northern Ireland does, but I think that GB does.
0: Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you, Patricia, and we look forward to receiving those additional pieces of information. And thank you for your attendance and answers today. Thank you. All okay, right, thank you. Okay. Bye, bye, Patricia. Okay, members. Um, any other issues or are members content uh, to note the essay? Mm-hmm. Yep, members content to note. Thank you. Moving on then to SL one, the food miscellaneous amendments, etc. EU exit regulations, NA. The Food Standards Agency advises that the Department of Health proposes to make a statutory rule to revoke the Food Amendment EU Exit Regulations 2019 and to ensure, at the end of the transition period, that the legislation it was intended to amend remains operable. It also makes some technical amendments to domestic regulations. The FSA advises that minor amendments are proposed to legislation in relation to natural spring and bottled water regulations but that ongoing policy and legal considerations may require further SRs to be made. The FSA further advises that amendments are also proposed to the Food Hygiene Regulations 2006 to ensure businesses continue to meet the necessary requirements on the form and application of health and identification marks at the end of the transition period, and to reflect the application of the ireland North of Ireland Protocol. I can advise that an official from the FSA is available to respond to members' questions if required. So, do members have any issues to wish to raise with? Questions. Yep, yep. So, um, so then I would like to welcome uh, to address questions, Miss Catherine Baker. Catherine, can you hear us there? Okay. Sorry, we don't have Catherine online. Um, will we stick? Yeah, I'll suspend there for a second.
16: This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly. Yeah.
0: So just, just while we're, yeah. So I think we might have Catherine now on the, on the uh, video conference. And Catherine, can you hear us there now? Okay. <laughs> Hi Catherine. Welcome. Welcome to our committee meeting this morning, Catherine. And we do have a question, or at least one question, from Deputy Chair Pam Cameron. Go ahead, Pam. Yeah,
3: thanks, Chair. Thank you, Catherine. And not keep you too long. Um, I was wanting to ask around uh, any future divergence on labelling or composition of food between GB and NI, um, adding to existing checks and customs on food that will be required from day one in 2021. Um, so. Um, If you could tell us a bit more about that. And do you envisage a situation where uh, baby food, for example, sold in GB would not be available here in Northern Ireland to the consumer?
19: Okay. Okay. so Pam, you've raised three questions there. So if I can just um, pick up the first question, which is regarding potential divergence to labeling and composition. Um, So, as you'll be aware, with um, the Northern Ireland Protocol, Northern Ireland will continue to follow EU regulations in this area. Um, So, we will continue with the same standards that we do now, and obviously, as that changes with EU rules, we will follow pace with that. That does then mean that there is a potential for divergence with the rest of the UK going forward after the 1st of January. Um, Members will be aware that there are other strands of work through common frameworks to to constantly um, be aware of these issues and for these issues to be discussed through those frameworks. So there are mechanisms to consider where there would be divergence. Um, And what it would mean for the UK internal market um, and Northern Ireland. So, yes, in answer to that first question, that that is a potential in the future. Um, If you'd like me to go to the second question. So, you asked if there, um, I think you asked me if there uh, is likely to be existing checks on um, imports on the 1st of January. Can I just check that? Yes, thank you. That's right. So, yes, again, under the Northern Ireland Protocol, The Northern Ireland, as I've said, will continue to to follow the EU rules and that includes the um, import rules that um, are contained within official control regulations. So there will be a requirement for checks on food and feed um, coming into Northern Ireland from GB. Not all food, certain food where there are particular um, EU regulations around import checks. Um, however, we are working very, very closely with DARA, who are the lead Northern Ireland government department, on this work, um, and also with the district councils who will deliver that service on the ground alongside DARA. Um, and, uh, you, you know, this is obviously all subject to negotiation within the joint committee, so much of this is still being discussed. Um, and so, we, you know, the full scale of what an import rating will look like is still um, within consideration. And I think um, the last question you asked was around baby food, um, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm not entirely sure that I can answer you on that today. We can certainly come back to you on that, um, so I wouldn't wouldn't like to commit to anything that might be untrue. So if it's if we
3: can come
8: back to you in writing, that that would be good. Thank you
3: appreciate that.
8: Thank you. Thank
0: you. I'm going to Jonathan.
8: Thanks, Chair. Although technical, this amendment is part of a wider process that will separate Northern Ireland from the UK food standard regime and risk further divergence along the line. So, can I ask uh, how do these changes interact with the letter by the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister to the EU setting out concerns around barriers uh, to the supply of food?
10: Yeah, as
19: you point out, there is a, obviously these are very related because um, the, the the first minister and deputy first minister letter is concerned with any um, new import regime and how that could impact on food supply. So yes, there there are a lot of interdependencies. What I would say is that um, the conversations at a joint committee level are still ongoing. So this is not um, the the, out, the final outcome is not determined yet. Um, and certainly um, within the DERA programme all the delivery partners were very aware of food supply issues um, and those issues are being fed in um, to the to the conversations.
0: Okay thank you. Um, Any further questions members? No. Okay Um, thank you Catherine for joining the committee and and for providing that information and we look forward to receiving the further information that you have. Um, Clerk did you have something there? Yes, I. We're, we're going on to the next item, then. So, if you could just stay on the line, please, Catherine. Thank you. So, um, in relation to that, SL1, then have members any further issues to raise? Is the committee content that the department makes the statutory rule? Yeah, members are content. Thank you. Moving on, then, members to 11, no, item 11, which is SL1, the Food Hygiene Rating Act Amendment Regulations 2020. The Food Standards Agency advises that the Department of Health proposes to make a statutory rule to allow a technical amendment to the Food Hygiene Rating Act 2016 insofar as it will replace references to repealed EC Regulation 882 2004 with references to the EU regulation replacing it. The FSA advises that the amendments are necessary to provide a mechanism for new mandatory food hygiene ratings to be produced. For existing or new food business establishments, but that the amendments contained in the proposed statutory rule will be minor and technical in nature and will not make any policy or operational changes to the statutory food regime, food hygiene rating scheme. So we do still have Catherine on the line. Do members have any questions in relation to that? Um, Catherine, can I just ask, is that is that food rating will that be a new scheme or a Uh, continuation of the current scheme?
19: Yes, so this is a continuation of the current scheme. There's absolutely no change to the current scheme, only that um, a European regulation that we had referenced in the Act has been repealed and replaced with exactly the same provisions. It's just a new regulatory title, so we just need to reflect the Act in accordance with that, but it is the same scheme and there's absolutely no change to how it will operate currently.
8: Thank you. Uh, Jonathan and then Pam. Thanks, Chair. Just to follow up on that, is it likely that businesses and restaurants in Northern Ireland and elsewhere in the United Kingdom will be rated on a different basis going by these standards? Uh, will this potentially add disproportionately red tape to Northern Ireland business? So, will there be a differential?
19: Okay, so I mean, on day one, we, we all follow the same rules, and actually, the rules in this regard and what the businesses are assessed against Um, are, you know, general sort of hygiene standards that apply across the board and and, and generally follow sort of global standards in terms of hygiene in businesses. So it's very unlikely that um, there will be really um, much difference Um, and certainly there will be no difference for the Northern Ireland businesses in terms of how they are assessed in terms of their food hygiene standards and subsequently how they get their rating. So there will be no additional admin burden on the businesses here.
0: Thank you, Pam. Yeah, and
3: just briefly, you maybe covered it, um, Catherine, but I'm just wondering, do you you know what the situation is in in GB uh, in relation to their continuation of the the Food Hygiene Rating Act?
19: Yes, so um, in
3: England, actually, the
19: scheme is not a mandatory scheme the way it is in Northern Ireland and Wales, but certainly in England, um, the Food Standards Agency is keen that the scheme would become mandatory at some stage. Um, However, the scheme does operate uh, in England. Um, uh, Ratings are provided to businesses. Businesses do display those, and we always provide them on our website. Um, And the schemes are currently consistent across the three countries. Um, So the only difference is that it's not a mandatory requirement on the business in England now to display their rating on their premises, but hopefully um, that will change in the coming future.
0: Okay, thank you. And Catherine, um... The operational date I note within this is the 23rd of December, why is that so late?
19: I think it's just with um, all the other legislation that needs to go through um, the scale of legislation we've been working on, um, it, it's just trying to fit it in with existing timetables, um, so um, we, we do just need to get to get it in this year while we've got the, the provision in the European Communities Act to make this amendment.
0: Okay. Okay. Thank you, Catherine. Again, for for addressing those issues for us, and I think we can uh, that that's that's okay. We that's all we need from you this morning. But thank you very much for attending our committee hearing this morning. So, members, any further issues to raise with that? And is the committee therefore content that the department makes this statutory rule? Committee is content. Thank you. Okay, members. Moving on then to um, item number twelve. Legislative Consent Motion uh, amendment to the Medicines and Medical Devices Bill. I refer members to departmental papers at tab 12 of your pack and to the clerk's memo at tab 12.5 of table papers. Can I advise members that officials from the Department of Health are here by video link to brief the committee on the further legislative consent motion led by the Minister of Health in respect of the Medicines and Medical Devices Bill introduced in Westminster? So I'd now like to welcome Ms. Cathy Harrison, who is Chief Pharmaceutical Officer, Ms. Bernie Duffy, who is head of medicines policy branch, and Mr David Wilson, head of safety strategy unit. Um, And panel, can I advise one of you have feedback there? Is there an outside link uh, live or something like that? So that is dropped. Hopefully that's addressed. Can I advise, or ask you all to ensure that if you're not speaking, your phone is on mute? And can I just check if Cathy is, is on the line with one of you or is on the line separately? Um, Mr. Chairman, can you hear me? Um,
6: I'm, I, I don't to your video on it today, so I'll
0: just... Um, OK, that's fine, Cathy, that that will work fine. So uh, you're welcome to committee this morning. Um, thank you for coming along. And could you now go ahead, Cathy, and brief the committee on this LCM? Thank you.
6: Mr Chairman, thank you for the opportunity to brief the committee today on the Medicines and Medical Devices Bill, with particular reference to those provisions of the bill that deal with human medicines and medical device this information systems. I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Bernie Duffy, who will uh, provide the briefing for the committee and then we will be happy to answer questions afterwards. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Okay, Bernie, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah. Can you hear me, Chair? Yes, we're hearing you loud and clear. Thanks.
20: Okay. So um the committee will recall.
0: There's some mm-hmm. feedback on your line there, Bernie. Yeah, there is. There is. Yeah, there's quite a bit of feedback, actually, Bernie, on your line. I think it's your line.
20: Is that okay now, Chair?
0: Yeah, that seems better. Yeah.
20: Okay. Okay, Chair. Um, thank you. Um, The Committee will recall that the um, Assembly agreed Legislative Medical Devices Bill on the 16th of June. Now, the existing regulatory frameworks for medicines Medical devices, clinical trials, and veterinary medicines to be updated or amended by means of subordinate legislation. The bill seeks to update the equivalent, or to provide the equivalent, delegated powers as are provided by Section 22 of the European Communities Act 1972, without which the UK government and Northern Ireland Assembly would have to rely on primary legislation to make any changes to regulatory frameworks. The need for a Further legislative consent motion has arisen because of an amendment made to the bill at Commons Report stage in respect of medical devices information systems and more recently government amendments currently being considered for agreement at the Lords Committee stage. These we were mainly in response to concerns regarding the bill Bernie,
0: sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Bernie. You're you're cutting in and out a bit there. It's a little bit hard to follow you. I'm ju- I'm just wondering, Bernie, um, you're, you're cutting out a bit. Let me just turn up my volume. Yeah, and, and also there seems to be some movement. There seems to be fun, some at times you're breaking up altogether, but we'll try it there with a bit louder volume. And uh, if you just take it okay. as slow as you can, please. And there is some there is some other noise coming through on the line. Um we, we are getting and it could be one of our it could be uh, any of our panel or our MLAs there but there is feedback coming through a line someone is not on mute that's yeah what's
20: the just, volume like now chair
0: can I just ask everyone else apart from I don't think it's you Bernie can I ask everyone else to make sure your phone is on mute and we'll go ahead then again Bernie we'll say yeah go ahead Bernie
20: Okay, Yep. Okay, so um, a government amendment to the Medicines and Medical Devices Bill was made and passed during the Commons report stage on the 23rd of June. And this provides a power to establish a medical devices information system operated by NHF Digital. Regulations under a new clause headed information systems will enable the Secretary of State to instruct NHS Digital to create and operate a medical devices information system for the whole of the UK, including Northern Ireland. This amendment is in response to the report from the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety Review, which was chaired by Baroness Julia Cumberledge, entitled First Do No Harm which was published on the 8th of July, 2020. The aim of a medical device information system is to improve the safety and standards of medical devices by ensuring better information can be captured and shared on implanted devices in order to identify risks posed by specific devices much earlier. The medical device information system will provide critical benefits to patients who have been or indeed will be in the future implanted with medical devices. These include the collection and storage of information, linking unique identifiers to patients, clinicians, and the specific surgical procedure that implanted the device. Establishing systems that will enable health providers to trace patients who have been treated or implanted with the medical device so that the patient can be provided with the appropriate medical treatment if a safety issue occurs with a particular device. It is important, therefore, to ensure that regulations to be developed to implement the information system take account of the governance arrangements in Northern Ireland. In response to concerns raised by the devolved administrations on this point, amendment is being proposed by the government that when making regulations under Clause 16, the Secretary of State is required to consult Scottish ministers, Welsh ministers and the Department of Health in Northern Ireland. In addition to this amendment, there's a separate non-legislative com- commitment from DHSE to ongoing discussions on the medical device information system, governance arrangements, and other operational details that will ensure that the Department of Health in Northern Ireland is engaged in relevant policy and operational discussions and the development of draft regulations. I will now turn briefly to the other, commitments, other amendments currently being considered at the Lords Committee stage. The first of these is on disclosure of information um, in accordance with international agreements. So in order that the UK, and in particular the MHRA and the Veterinary Medicines Directorate in Northern Ireland can continue to work with international partners to ensure the safety of medicines in the UK, there is a need to strengthen the legal basis for sharing information internationally. This would be in the form of a statutory information gateway inserted into the bill. And this is to ensure that vital information can be shared with bodies outside of the UK, such as overseas regulators. This amendment has been agreed at the Lords committee stage on the 4th of November. The other amendments being proposed by the government at the Lords committee stage are mainly in response to the report by the Delegated Powers and Regulatory Reform Committee, which included concerns in relation to scrutiny and oversight of the use of delegated powers contained in the bill However, the majority of these powers um, sought reflect the powers that are currently available to the UK and indeed are found within the European Communities Act 1972. The government amendments are to provide reassurance about how the powers are intended to be exercised. And I will outline these now for you. In order to address the concern of the committee that the bill provided the Secretary of State with too much discretion on how the powers are exercised, minute excuse me an amendment will be tabled to provide for a reporting obligation on the secretary of state that would consider the operation of regulations made under clauses 1 8 and 12 within a specified reporting period which is once every two years and this will set out the views of those who have been consulted whether a change has been made as a result of the consultation and indeed including a look ahead at further proposed regulatory change known at the time within the forthcoming reporting period. It is proposed a separate will be taken forward by the Northern Ireland departments in respect of any regulations made only by Northern Ireland departments, and this will be laid before the assembly. Concerns have also been used, raised about the use of the negative procedure in relation to regulations made under clauses one and eight, and in particular, those relying on clauses two and nine It is intended to amend Clause 42 of the Bill to apply a Draft Affirmative Procedure in Westminster and in the Northern Ireland Assembly, so that all regulations made under these clauses, except for those relating to fees and any urgent regulations made relying on Clause 6. It's also intended to amend Clause 42 of the Bill so that urgent regulations relying on Clause 6 are subject to the made affirmative procedure this is similar to the confirmatory procedure in the Northern Ireland assembly, whereby regulations are laid after being made and cease to have effect unless they are approved within 40 days. Another matter on which there was considerable debate prior to the Lords committee stage has been the application of the three considerations that the appropriate authority must have regard to and how these considerations are weighted when making regulations to respond to concerned about the absence of a definition of attractiveness of the uk it is intended to clarify that this is a consideration of relevant part of the uk being seen as an attractive or favorable place in which to supply and conduct criminal trials for human medicines and develop and supply veterinary medicines the government is seeking by amendment to clarify the intent in this regard it is also intended to provide an overarching duty to have regard to the importance of promoting health and safety of the public, and in relation to veterinary medicines, the health and welfare of animals, the considerations currently in clauses one and eight of the bill will then form part of satisfying that duty. It is intended to provide that the appropriate authority must be satisfied that the regulations would promote the health and safety of the public, and in relation to veterinary medicines, the health and safety of animals and have regard to the considerations currently in clauses one and eight when determining whether they would this will strengthen provision around the exercise of these regulate regulation making powers and provide reassurance that it is only intended to make regulations amend the current regulatory regimes where those sorry we
0: just lost we just lost you there we just we just just lost you there we're saying were those Um, we lost you for a few seconds my
20: back
0: yeah you're back now thank you
20: okay do you need me to repeat
0: any of that yeah, sure, just, you enough, uh, yeah just repeat the last the last sentence or so uh, Bernie we did lost some of that yeah and
20: um, so um, I said it's in, uh, intended to provide that the authority, appropriate authority must be satisfied that the regulations would promote the health and safety of the public and in relation to veterinary medicines, the health and welfare of animals. This would strengthen provision around the exercise of these regulation making powers and provide reassurance that it is only intended to make regulation to amend the current regulatory regimes where those changes promote health and safety. A further concern was the ability to create new criminal offences through regulation-making powers, and, more specifically, that the powers may be to amend the penalties for existing offences with no risk on the maximum that can be set. The government proposed...
0: We're losing you again, Bernie. We're losing you. I'm not sure what's happening there, but we've lost you there again. Bernie, we've lost you there from Bernie. Uh, apologies, but we have lost you there from criminal offenses forward. New criminal offenses.: Can you hear me,
3: Bernie?::
0: Bernie, can you hear me there? Yeah, we have lost. We'll we we'll need to suspend there for a couple of minutes to
16: see. Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed.
0: Okay. So, Bernie, I'm, I'm hoping we've got you back on the line there, Bernie. And maybe if you try to. Uh, take yourself off the video function and go with audio only. It might help the feed. But can I check, are you there? And are you hearing us, Bernie? Can you hear me there, Bernie?
20: Yes, I can hear you.
0: Okay, we're hearing you there now, Bernie. If you keep your video off for the remainder, it may help with with, uh, with communication. So you were you were you, we lost you there where you were saying around new criminal offences. If you could pick it up from that point, please.
20: Certainly. Um, I just um, finished by saying that the Department of Justice had previously considered the bill and more recently the amendments proposed, and were content that the current offences and penalties. Are necessary and commensurate with the current offences and penalties framework in Northern Ireland. Okay,
0: is that you, is that you finished, brief-
20: Bernie?
0: So just checking then. with Cathy. Cathy, uh, uh, is that is there any other briefing, Cathy, or is Bernie's briefing completed? That. No, Chairman is
20: the only briefing, and then we're able to take questions.
0: Okay, so we'll go ahead. We'll go ahead then. To move to questions now. So I suppose the first question for me is in relation to: Is there an interplay or interaction between the, uh, this LGM this, this and the Irish Protocol? And because I presume that medical devices count as goods and would come under its remit. So. Um, Are there there any implications for any of these amendments on the protocol? And if so, what contingency planning has there been to deal with those issues? Go ahead, Bernie. No, we're getting feedback coming through there.
6: There are
0: no implications from
6: the change on this legislative consent motion in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, Chair, we
0: can advise. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Cathy. We are hearing you there. I think that's Cathy speaking. Thank you. Sorry, we're not hearing you at the minute, Cathy. Um, could you try that again? Or Bernie?
20: Sorry, Chair, could you repeat the question there? we just just having a bit of um, feedback on the line.
0: Yeah, um it is very important that, that you, you are not on the live as well as on the Starleaf system. Uh, that created some of the problems in an earlier session, so if we can just ask you all to ensure that, first of all, you are on mute if you are not speaking, and second of all, that you are only connected on via the, via the main system. So My question was, are there any implications for these amendments for the protocol, and, if so, what contingency plans have there been to deal with those issues? Or, indeed, would we need our own system here to deal with those types of issues?
6: Mr Chairman, Cathy, here. Yeah. Cathy, there's very bad feedback on your line. problems. Uh, Mr Chairman, we're all yep. with this. Um, no, there are no implications in relation to the uh, Northern Ireland football
0: and the LCM. Thank you. No implications whatsoever.
6: not in respect of the, the legislative consent motion, no.
0: And how can you, like, I, I, I'm, I'm honestly, I just don't understand how you can, can you tell us what the remit of it is or how you're so certain about that? Okay. Mr. Chairman, uh, the,
6: the, the main, uh, implication of the Lcm that we're seeking here is the new um, data information system for medical devices and that is no there's no um, implications in terms of that in terms of trade or in terms of movement of goods or anything else in terms of Northern Ireland protocol
0: okay and in relation to the data the data element of it um yes, Are there any concerns about collecting and sharing patient information with NHS Digital in terms of data security and the ownership of that data?
7: Yes, that's Wilson here, Chair.
11: That is the reason why why we sought the the, uh, amendment to the bill so that we can be involved in the regulations in the aspect of this and involved in the preparation of those aspects.
7: the, the, the legislation will be, in fact, allow the NHS Digital to collect our data from our patients and from our health service, and will be, will be
0: storing it securely on our behalf. Okay, and finally from me, the, 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 the Minister has referred to governance arrangements. Um, is the department content with the assurances received that the devolved, all, of the, all of the various, and, and in particular here, that we will be consulted on these regulations in the future? Uh,
7: apologies, Chair. I could not make it. Uh, can you repeat the question, please?
0: Yeah. What in in relation to the governance arrangements um, is the department content with the assurances received, and that we will be consulted in terms of future regulations in this area?
7: Apologies, Chair. Again, um, I didn't get that question
0: coming through here. Okay, the Minister has sought assurances. Are he you hearing me there at the minute, um, David? Are you hearing me now? I can't do it. I
11: can't
0: do it. No. Okay, I'm going to pause there again. I'm going to pause the meeting.
16: This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed. Okay, I'm going to just uh,
0: make another check to see can the officials who are on the video conference and hear me now. No. Okay. Okay, we 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 have we have decided that we will submit questions in relation to this issue in writing. Given the department's difficulty in connecting today, we will submit questions in writing and ask for an urgent response from the department in writing to our committee. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, members. So we're going to continue then with the. Uh, the rest of our business, we are turning to cars. spotless.
18: Yes, chair. Could I just request those questions to be emailed to me as soon as possible, please, members?
5: Can you send out a reminder after the meeting, just so that we can respond to it? Because I have another committee meeting after this. So,
9: okay. Chair, can I just make a point of order? Yep. If it's possible? Chair, I know that there's technological problems, but whenever you're going to use, come out of private session, none of the members that are on by Spotlight are able to participate, but also just to let you know that we can all hear everything that you're saying. So I just think there needs to be great care in case you you go into private session to talk about the people that are in the Spotlight, because they can actually hear you, but we're not able to actually participate in the conversation and update you on what our experiences are from here. And, And this wasn't always the case. There used to be a way that whenever you went into um, and you know the, within the private session that the members of the committee were able to remain in the spotlight and talk and chat but we we're being put out as well and it just it's yeah much,
0: yeah I, I agree i agree Colin it's, it's it's not satisfactory i think i think this issue does need to be looked at and i think the committee needs to write again and ask for this to be addressed i mean it's very difficult to conduct proper scrutiny and analysis in, in, this, in this context. Yeah, this context.
8: Can, can I ask that, were appropriate, can we have officials come to the committee? Uh, because we do have space provided for them, and I think it is only right, given the seriousness of these issues, that if possible, given the proximity to the Department of Health building with this Senate chamber, that they are here in person, if can be.
0: Yeah, I think that's members. Yeah, I think that's that's as long as
11: it's safe. Uh, I, I, I noticed, Chair, just in the, the first uh, presentation today, now, it might just be might just be me and lack of of good hearing, but I was struggling actually. I was losing words. You don't get a whole sentence. Yeah. You know, you right. lose vital words out of a sentence, and it really is. It's really hard to to keep up when they're here. You don't miss a word.
0: Yeah. No, and, and I found I found that that is the case. I think for, for all of us, Alan, as well. So thank you for that point. Um, okay. Well, listen, members. Uh, so members, please email any questions you have in relation to this session. We'll send it down to the department and try to get uh, prompt responses to those. And we'll see what we can do in terms of uh, conducting our, our business uh, more in in the future. Okay, members. Thank you for that. i moving then to correspondence and turning to. A, I refer members to correspondence at tab 13 of the pack, and to table papers and in your table papers, and also to the correspondence memo at tab 13.1. There are some items that I would like to draw members' attention to. First of all, item 13.17 is a note of the meeting between some of those affected by the neurology patient recall, the Minister of Health, and senior departmental officials. So, um, any comments on that? Yes, Gerry, go ahead.
12: Thanks, Chair. I think it was important that the meeting uh, did take uh, place. I know it was uh, well uh, I, th- I think just quickly, the the patients have said. Uh, that don't want a tick box exercise. Communication is important, and a range of other issues as well. And I think it is important. Uh, I'm sure many of them are, are thankful that the minister apologised to the way they've been treated as well. So I think um, it was a long time coming. It shouldn't have taken this long, but um, I think it's uh, it, hopefully it's moving in the right direction for those those patients.
0: Yep okay yeah and, and I also would welcome that engagement I think it is I think it is really important and really valuable to up to all sides to both sides or, or all sides or all parties uh, where these engagements take place and that people's experiences are being heard directly and impacting on the work that's ongoing I think that's a hugely important issue so would members be content to note uh, for now pending further scrutiny in the new year yep thank you members uh, item 13.22. Sorry, I just have seen Pat Sheehan there. Pat, do you want to comment on that neurology issue? Yeah, yes, sure. it's
17: actually in relation to thirteen point one eight. It's in relation to the neurology uh, forward work programme, I suppose you could call it. Um, I, I had a. It's particularly in relation to the review of deceased patients of Doctor What, uh, and. There seems to have been a problem in developing some sort of legal framework in order for the Belfast Trust to release uh, patient records to the RQIA. I I find this situation very unsatisfactory. In fact, I looked back at notes from a neurology cross party party meeting on the 4th of October 2018, when uh, We were told that the deceased patient review would be finished by June the following year, which was June 2019. I then had a meeting with the RQIA in October 2019, uh, and I was told at that meeting that the legal framework was close to completion, and they expected the review of deceased patients to begin in early spring of 2020. Obviously, we've had COVID since then and everything appeared to have stopped from from uh, March until June. But, uh, I mean, COVID is being used uh, to cover up a lot of things, to, the, the, you know, where work has stopped. And it seems, you know, it beggars belief to me that work on a legal framework would have to stop on the basis of uh, COVID. but. I mean, we're two years on since we were told the uh, review would be completed within seven or eight months. Uh, I just find it highly unsatisfactory. And uh, I'm not sure whether that was one of the issues that was raised with patients who met the the minister, probably not. Uh, But it's something, I mean, I have been dealing with some uh, relatives of deceased patients who are very unhappy about the length of time it's taken to begin this review and complete it.
0: OK, would members be content that we seek further information in relation to the difficulties of that legal framework, given that, that COVID, has been, um, COVID has been put forward as a, as a reason, that we seek further information as to why COVID is or, or what's impacted? Members content with that? Yep. Yep. Um,
5: Chair, just you go on, it, yep. it was very useful having um, Brett Lockhart and Hugo Massey Taylor a few weeks ago. Thought it was really a very useful session, but obviously from the correspondence, it's just one element of the investigation into what happened. And I think that it's possibly um, maybe in the future, even to invite then the department or RKI to talk specifically about that. Obviously, we're preoccupied with COVID still, but I do think that that's something we need to come back to because there's some elements around the redress. And as um Pat alluded to then, the deceased patients, there's there's elements of this that I'm unhappy with in terms of the rate of progress as well.
0: And actually, members, I'm, I'm reminded now in our forward work we have requested an oral briefing in relation to those other strands. So actually that might pick up on, on that concern and your concern, Paula. There is a briefing in, in train with the department asking for those other strands so we can pick up on these issues then. But I think they're I think they're they're uh, they're they're worth looking at okay. Okay, members, so um Moving on then to another item in table papers thirteen point two one is a reply from that's the one I'm referring to there. So are members content to note then in relation to that, pending the further work in the in the oral briefing and the further members content with that? Thank you. Um, So moving on then. Are members, content, uh, subject, are members content with the actions I suggested in the correspondence memo at 13.1 of the pack? Yeah, members content. Moving on then, members, to forward work programme. So item 14 there, members, uh, in the draft is is uh, 14.1. It has the draft forward work programme. Are members content to note the forward work programme? Yeah. Okay, members are content. Um, I also want to just return members to in relation to the LCM there, which, which ended uh, kind of um, in, that, in that technological difficulty, and we had agreed to look at uh, forwarding questions, but there was another issue that needed dealt with in relation to that. So can I ask members in relation to the LCM on Medicines and Medical Devices bill? Uh, that LCM contains provisions relevant to the Committee for Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs. Are members content that we seek the views of that committee on that LTM as well? Absolutely, yeah, yeah members content. Thank you. So, returning then, members to. Uh
5: Sorry, Chair, I had another um, issue around the forward work programme, and that was I think that there was a request in from the Stroke Association. I think it would be useful if we have, like, an update of. Be still outstanding. Who've put requests in to give evidence to the committee? Please.
0: In relation to the consultation, Paul? is it? Oh, no,
5: no, no. no. Moving ahead. past the consultation, I'm just saying, in terms of the request to give evidence to the committee, we haven't been able to fit them all in so far because we've had our inquiry and the COVID response um, updates. But it's just really <coughs> week, we're fast approaching summer, or sorry, Christmas recess, um, and then just for going forward from January, who are we really waiting to hear, and how we, we can prioritise that?
0: Yep. Okay. Yep. Members content with that? Thank you. Yep. And members also, in light of, in light of the, the, uh, the the fact that we have uh, decided to kind of look at the whole issue of fine test trace and how that might impact on uh, our ability to deal with the pandemic and to try to avoid elements of going in and out of, of lockdowns. Would members agree that it might be timely for us to arrange a session with international experts to look at best practice elsewhere again? Uh, we could, similar to the last time, ask Ray's to provide us with a panel of experts from countries that have experience of that. Um, so, would members so we could ask uh, academics to brief us on how the most successful fine test systems operate, have been developed? Are members content with that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay are we going
5: to have that the committee
0: motion? Um, it will be unlikely. I don't think th- I don't think that will be possible given the motions on the twenty-third. Yeah, yeah. yeah. um, so going on then to any other business, do members have any other business today for this meeting? No. Date and time then and place of the next meeting. So before we move into closed session to begin our consideration of evidence on our care Homes inquiry. I would advise that our next meeting in public will be on the Thursday the 19th of November at 9:30 in the Senate chamber. Okay? Thank you members.